0: Hello and welcome to the Swift Coders podcast, where each week we interview an amazing Swift developer about their experience with Apple's new open source programming language. We hear their stories, learn their tips and tricks, and try to leave you feeling inspired and empowered on your Swift Coder journey. I'm your host, Garrick, and today's guest is Nick Lockwood. Nick is an iOS engineer at Shipstead in London, and he's also the creator of Swift Format. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for being here. How's it going? Good, yeah. What are you up to right now? Yeah, <laughs> I'm recording a podcast. Yeah. Uh. Have you ever done this before?
1: A uh, couple of times, yeah.
0: I feel like I, I've never like seen, I've heard uh, like heard a podcast of you or seen you like in, in a talk, like a video or anything like that. It's interesting, like. Uh, for those that don't know Nick or haven't heard of Nick, I mean, you probably have uh, or you probably use his tools like the more popular Swift one is a uh, Swift format. And, um, you know, and you actually you have like a lot of tweets, I feel like that get retweeted and things like that. Um, but at the same time, I feel like you're such a mysterious guy, you know, like your profile picture is always the same. And and uh, it's interesting. I, I don't know. So, uh, yeah, so you ha- so you have done podcasts before.
1: I, I have. I, I... I don't like uh, record my own. So when, when I've been invited uh, occasionally in the past, I've done it. Um, it's not a very regular thing. It's um, it's a little bit difficult to fit it into my day. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, I work full time and I have a family, so you know, I don't have a lot of sort of spare time or, you know, what spare time I do have. I, I'm probably spending coding. Right. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I tend not to do the sort of multimedia thing much. I don't do videos. I don't really blog. Um, I don't record podcasts on the whole. Um as you mentioned like my my main sort of connection to the outside world tends to be through Twitter.
0: Has anyone ever invited you to come speak at a conference or anything like that like a Swift conference?
1: Oh, absolutely. In fact, I just got back from um, a conference yesterday. Which conference? It's it was a Mobile Era conference in Norway in Oslo. Mobile Era. Yep. That's cool. I haven't heard of that.
0: What uh, it's uh,
1: I think it's, it's fairly new. I think this was the second year that they they've been running it.
0: Is it iOS specific or it's just like all mobile?
1: Um, it's it was uh, iOS, Android, and mobile web. Do
0: you do? Do you just do iOS or do you also do like other? Do you do like
1: Android or? No, I just do iOS. Mm-hmm. I, I used to be a front end web developer. Um, so like. You know, I was I was pretty into that circa sort of two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, and then the iPhone happened, and you know that was kind of like pretty much the last time I touched it. So, mobile era, have you been there before? No, it was my first time. I don't think I've heard of it before.
0: Wait, so you gave a talk there?
1: Yeah. What did you talk about? I talked about my new newest framework, which is called Layout. Ah, oh, cool. Yeah, I want to get into that. Uh, all
0: right, have you? Have you is that your first time you've given a talk or
1: No, it wasn't. I've spoken at a few conferences before. I spoke at UIConf in Berlin, which is maybe maybe more familiar to you. Yeah. Um UIConf.
0: I know that one. Is that was your talk recorded? I believe so. Oh my gosh, I got to go find it. Uh, so UIConf what year?
1: Gosh. Uh, I think it was two maybe 3 years ago. So um, 2000... I spoke about, uh, yeah, I spoke about like, uh, image loading performance. I think it was
0: image loading performance. Okay.
1: I'm going to try to dig that up. 2014, maybe. Yeah, it could be. Uh, I mean, I only spoke there once that was recorded as far as I know. So, okay. I'll uh... take a look. Okay, cool. Well, so
0: Nick, tell us a little bit about what you're up to right now. You are an iOS engineer at Shipstead. Can you just tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I've been at Shibstead just a little over a year. And um, for most of the time there, actually, I've been working on uh, the platform team, which is basically building uh, tools to aid our engineers in like getting their work done. So, uh, you know, sort of engineering productivity type stuff. Um, It was while I was at Shibstead that I wrote Swift format. I, I wrote that in my spare time, but we're actually using it at the company now. And, uh, I've also been working on layout, which I've been fortunate enough to actually be able to do during my day job rather than as a side project.
0: That's really cool. I, I love the idea of a uh, platform. Uh, we do, uh, some of that as well at Tinder and, uh, our, uh, one of the developers, Chris Fuller is on the platform, uh, team and I help him a little bit too and, Uh, We actually use Swift Format or uh, actually we use SwiftLint and I was talking to them about using Swift Format. We're going to get into this a little later. (laughs) Um, And I love that kind of stuff like developer happiness, developer productivity. Um, That's just really fun. And uh, especially like a lot of it is like automation kind of or code reuse, you know, for instance, like layout. Um, like creating creating these uh, APIs to make it easier, f- so developers have to you know, type less, uh, or you know have a more absolutely have like a more convenient way of accessing um, a lot you know an API.
1: That stuff's yeah. really fun. And, and maybe it's just my perception, but it seems like there's been a kind of uh, explosion of this stuff recently. Like in sort of post Swift, I think we're seeing more of this now than we we sort of did before. And I don't know why that is. I don't think it's because like. Swift is so much less productive than Objective C that like people feel they need to write tools now. I think it's something else. Like maybe the maybe there's just been a kind of global change. Um, you know, there's been a lot of like uh, development in the JavaScript community of new tooling as well. So like maybe everybody's just building more tools now, and and you know the the Swift community is no different. So I have a limited uh,
0: perspective on the um, you know open source community developer tools world. Um, my first language really is Swift, but I think I can guess. So, assuming what you're saying is true, I think I can guess why. And um, my guess is that Swift attracts so many different, more people and diff- with different perspectives and different wants and needs and styles and, and preferences. And so, mm-hmm. um, so the desire for different types of tools is is probably greater. And then there are probably different types of creators. You know, you have someone like you and or you have someone like you kind know, of John Sundell or uh JP Smart or uh you know the list goes on. And these people right. have different perspectives. Um that's that'd be one one of my guesses.
1: Yeah, I mean now I think about it like uh, a lot of the tools are along similar lines. So there's been a lot of um tools like SwiftLint and Swift format are for implementing sort of functionality that maybe we had um previously in Objective C or that comes from sort of other platforms which isn't you know isn't quite there yet on on in the swift world because it's so new like there's there's not really any linters there aren't really any like official formatting tools so that's kind of like you know there's a lot of opportunity there whereas in in the objective c world everybody just used clang format and that was fine um and the other kind of tool that you're seeing a lot of is uh, code generation and uh, again like Swift's lack of macros um maybe has kind of fed that like uh, there's a lot more need in in the way that the language works because it's less dynamic because it doesn't have macros. So the the, the need to generate code is maybe more pressing. And so you know things that can generate like static interfaces to reflect your um you know your JSON services, uh, stuff that can like um you know do automatic serialization, those kind of things. Um, I guess there's a lot of demand for that. Whereas maybe we didn't have that so much in Objective C where we would tend to do that stuff at runtime or you know, some other way. So you're, it sounds like you're saying because
0: uh, maybe because of the infancy of the language or who knows, maybe as it grows it'll never get those features. But because there's like a lack of these features like built in or the tools like already sort of existing um, people yeah, are, people are filling def- those voids.
1: I think it's definitely more to do with the infancy aspect. I mean uh, serialization is an example. Like Swift 4 just come out and we now have um the sort of the coding apis which we didn't have previously right and those do in fact you know fulfill the same role as many many libraries that exist on github you know there's like there must be dozens of like json parsing handling libraries and now that's that's like a one-liner now in Swift four i I don't know if they've necessarily covered all the use cases but that would definitely be an example of something where you know that was a that was a, a a Big missing piece of the language that has now been implemented and it's clear that that was not some kind of strategic decision that like oh we're not going to support this it's just they hadn't got around to it yet so uh, i think we're going to see a lot of probably a lot of tools are going to kind of come and go like uh, i i dare say that swift format will eventually be supplanted by something that's built in but you know it's kind of it's there to fill the gap until that happens
0: well there is that swift dash format readme in the swift repo have
1: you seen that Right. Yeah. And that actually existed before Swift Format. But um, when I took a look at it, it was it was very limited. And I think it's still pretty limited. It was it was kind of just doing indenting. And I wanted something that was a bit more in depth. Okay. So since we're
0: on the the subject, uh, what do you think that there's something about Swift that could change to that could make a tool like Swift Format easier to build or more precise or more powerful? For instance, some sort of access, you know, like they call like that abstract syntax tree or something like that. Um, Because, like, right now, you're sort of Swift format is sort of like creating its own tokenizer, like it's just reading string files and it's determining what these keywords are, right? Or are you using like source kit or something to to sort of get like almost like type information um, and then do your formatting better?
1: You know what I mean? So, this is, yeah, absolutely. And so, the answer to that question is, I mean, yes, there definitely are things that could be done. And in fact, many of these things have been done. I mean, Swift, Swift format has been around for over a year now. And in that time, you know, many new things have been developed by Apple that didn't previously exist. Um, there's, uh, if I can remember the name, it's something like the Structured Editing Library. Okay. Um, this is basically, uh, you know, within the last few months, Apple has introduced this, this new framework, which is basically... Uh, you know before we had SourceKit, right um, and SourceKit kit uh, is it's not a particularly easy library to use But there's a, a swift wrapper for it called source kitten, which was written by JP Simard at realm, right. Who is also the guy who wrote? Um, swift Lint, swift Lint uh, which which depends on SourceKitten. So I, I did look at SourceKitten when I was um, sort of looking to build uh, Swift format and I perhaps rightly or, or you know, perhaps wrongly I um, Sort of determined that it didn't do what I wanted. Like it, what it didn't give me the the sort of the right kind of syntax tree for what I wanted to do. Um, I, I think I may have actually possibly underestimated it. <laughs> um, but you know, you only get so long to review something like before you decide to write your own solution. Like that, there, there's a kind of like some trade off there. Um, but it is definitely the case that SourceKit is not designed for. Um, tools that edit source code like it's, it's primary purpose is to parse the source and, and you know Turn it into a form that can be compiled and Apple recognized this and so the the structured editing library is basically a, a Standard tool for manipulating source code rather than merely parsing it is this um, and it, it sh- Sorry, go ahead. Sorry <laughs> Yeah, it, it should provide the sort of the the low-level you know, tools necessary to implement things like refactoring. I think this is why Apple actually wrote it, so that they could finally give us refactoring tools in Xcode. But it will also be, I think, fantastically useful for the next generation of formatting and linting tools.
0: Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask. Is this related to the refactoring tools that were announced at DubDub? Uh, and I think they're also open sourced, and they're continuing to open source some related things.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely related. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the library that powers all of that Okay. Um, and there's also a, a Swift wrapper that's been written by Harlan Haskins, which looks quite interesting. I haven't really had a chance to dig into it yet. Um, you know, part of part of the issue is that I kind of have a solution that works already, and I'm happy with. Um, there are certain things I can't do with the Swift format um, parser. Basically, it's it's a tokenizer, and it's not really a parser. So it 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 understands source at the level of individual tokens, rather than like high-level structures, like functions and classes. And the sort of the disadvantage of that is that certain kinds of like thing I would like to be able to implement. Like, So one of the the more advanced features that I, I added to Swift format was the ability to automatically remove explicit self or insert explicit self, if, if that's your preference. Right. And uh, removing it, I can do with like 100% reliability, but uh, inserting self, I can't always do because in order to insert self i would need to know if like a, a property was a member of a class rather than just a local variable which means i need to know quite a lot about the class uh, including things like its superclass and any extensions that there might be on the class which might be defined in other files and at that point like if it's outside the file swift format has no idea because it doesn't really like compile your program it just looks at the the you know the file that you've told it to format you in many cases will tell it to format the whole project, but it doesn't do any kind of intra-file stuff at all. Um, so I definitely could make it more powerful by using SourceKitten or, or the structured editing library. One of the disadvantages of that is it would lose the speed benefit. So uh, Swift Format is actually extremely fast. Like uh, for most projects, it will it will format your whole project in well under a second. And if you think about how long it takes to compile a, uh, a project, it's you know it's off. And minutes or or in some cases hours, (laughs) right? Um, And, you know, running Swift Lint sort of takes that same kind of order uh, of time because that's basically what it's doing. It's compiling the whole project. But then instead of generating machine code, it's then like, you know, analyzing the source tree and and telling you when you've you've done bad things. Um, Swift format is, is doing something much more primitive than that. It's basically just, you know, looking at your tokens and sort of doing very simple substitutions. And it can do that extremely fast. But, uh, you know, if it wanted to do something more sophisticated, it would have to go a lot slower. So it sounds like
0: the benefits you're getting from Swift Format right now um, outweigh like anything you would get were you to use this new structured editing library.
1: That's kind of my instinct, but that that instinct is sort of partly based on ignorance. Like I haven't, you know, it, it's going to be a huge amount of work for me to determine whether that's actually true or not. So it's easier for me to just kind of assume that it's true. <laughs> um <laughs> Which is, you know, it's that's not very sort of scientifically rigorous of me, but I, I have a solution that works at the moment. And, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it.
0: Yeah. Is there anything else that, uh, the, that Swift could sort of have any other sort of access or APIs or, or features that it could have to improve um, what you're doing with Swift format? Or is the standard, the structured editing library, like that's all you would really need if you wanted to go that route?
1: Yeah, I mean, so the big problem or like the big maintenance burden for, for me for Swift Format is that I have to kind of know a lot about how the language works. Like I have to know all kinds of obscure features that I have never used and like hardly anybody's ever used because, you know, if somebody uses some weird syntax that I've, I've never seen before, then Swift Format's going to break down and like... Best case, it'll just like throw an error. Worst case, it'll corrupt their file. So I don't want that to happen. And I mean, there have been there have been incidents of that. Fortunately, very few of them. Um, like I, I've got a good test suite for Swift format, so I tend not to break stuff. But it does happen occasionally. Like uh, just recently, somebody's like filed a bug saying that it doesn't support the new um, key path syntax, like the backslash. Uh-huh. Because up until Swift 4, backslash was not a legitimate um, you know uh, token in, in Swift. So I don't support that. Um, it was like it took five minutes to fix it, but you know I, that's still an ongoing thing that I have to do, and I often rely on the community to tell me when something like that happens because I've I've never used that syntax. Like I was vaguely aware that it existed, but I haven't had any reason to use it myself.
0: I have two questions that I don't know for some reason. I feel kind of uncomfortable asking. Uh, the first is like, and I think you talk about this uh, in your in the README of Swift format, but like why, I don't know, if SwiftLint, did SwiftLint already exist? And actually maybe we could talk about like what are the differences between SwiftLint and SwiftFormat. And then like why not just, instead of like building SwiftFormat, why not just add the rules? I think you mentioned in the readme, like, it didn't have. It didn't do exactly what you wanted, so you created Swift Format. Like, why not just contribute to SwiftLint and add the things that you you want? Uh, this is a question that came up uh, with some of my peers. I'm sure people might have asked you this before, or, or people. I mean, you you put it on the README, so obviously. So I think it'd be interesting yeah, to to have that on the record. Uh, <laughs> you know, to to talk about it now. You this, know,
1: this is a very legitimate question, and uh, I mean, there's kind of like there's two answers to this. There's like the real answer <laughs> and then there's the kind of uh reverse like you know in retrospect this is a good reason answer <laughs> okay great so the the real answer is because like you know i wanted this tool and you know i sat down at my computer and i like google to see if people had already made tools like this and uh, you know any that looked vaguely plausible i sort of quickly downloaded them and i ran them and i had to look at what their capabilities were and what they produced um i you know i i found swift lint and i looked at that and it seemed to be a linter rather than a formatter um i found sourcekit and i ran that and it spat out some json and i looked at what that was in the json and it didn't look to me like it captured stuff like whitespace and things that i, I would definitely need in order to write uh, a formatting tool and uh you know so after maybe like a couple of hours of research i concluded that there wasn't anything out there that you know did what i needed to do and, uh, you know, I've, I've, I have I have experience in writing parsing tools. Um, like, so I, I have a sense of how difficult that's going to be. Um, so I was kind of faced with a decision at that point of like an open-ended search to try and find something that could be adapted to do this job, which could take any amount of time, right? And could also potentially end in failure. Like I, I there was a good chance that I would spend Days or weeks trying to get Swiftlint or SourceKitten to do what I wanted, and then, you know, ultimately discover that it wouldn't, and then that would be time wasted. Or I could spend what I thought I knew would be, you know, a certain amount of time building my own solution, and then like I had a hundred percent confidence that that would work. Um, so I basically made the call to build my own solution. Now, uh, you know, as I said, like. Immediately after doing that, it came to light that maybe tools like SwiftLint were were more powerful than I had given them credit for. Like SwiftLint does, in fact, have a format function built in. It's kind of slightly hidden, but there's a command line option that will uh, apply auto fixes. So basically, certain Lint rules can automatically fix your code to comply, which is basically formatting. Um, And, you know, from that, since I knew that source... uh, sorry, since I knew that SwiftLint used SourceKitten, I, I could therefore infer that SourceKitten must in fact somewhere have you know the, the white space information that I thought it was missing. So, you know, initially I thought, oh, well, you know, I, I made the wrong call. Um, but then, you know, even further on, I, I, I discovered that actually like, you know, Swift format is extremely fast compared to um, SwiftLint. And that that's a huge benefit because the way that I was originally using it, I was basically running it on every t- you know, every time we built our app it would run Swift format on the entire code base. Um, And so you really wanted that to be very, very fast indeed, because uh, Swift builds are already slow enough. You don't want another tool slowing them down. Um, So it's kind of, you know, to some extent I I suffer from the sort of not invented here syndrome, maybe a little, Uh, (laughs) I like to write things myself. I, you know, I much prefer to write code than I do to read it. And I probably tend to err on the side of uh, reinvention rather than reuse. Um, but you know, sometimes that that turns out to be the right choice in the end, even if maybe not for the reasons you thought it was when you made the decision. So, uh, you, it sounds like you went kind of. Uh, so at
0: first you were like, okay, let me let me see if I can find something, and you're like, you know what, there's nothing out there, so let me build something. Then you kind of went back and you were like, oh wait, actually maybe I shouldn't have. But then you went back and you're like, nope, actually this was the right decision. So it sounds like you ended up still deciding that you made the right decision.
1: Right, exactly. And that's why I'm not sort of in a hurry to like rewrite Swift format to use structured editing library because I you know, I have this instinct like you know, this 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 speed advantage is probably something that I don't want to lose at this point. Yeah, and
0: so to to sort of point it out, I I just I just want to be clear. Are you saying that SwiftLint you kind of have to build like the entire project for SwiftLint to sort of lint it, or is like where where does that speed difference come from?
1: That, that's exactly it. So Swift SwiftLint is using SourceKit, so it, it's doing the same job, like not the entire same job as compiling, but uh, you know it doesn't have to do linking, I don't think, but it, it's doing a good chunk of the work of the compiler um, using the compiler, like it's using you oh, know the underlying. I see. Yeah, so SwiftLint has to wait for Swift for SourceKit. Right. Exactly. Okay, great. And wow. I mean, it, it, like the kind of work it's doing that that Swift uh, format isn't is it's like, you know, finding all of your classes, building all the modules, like doing all the type checks, um, you know, uh, looking for errors, not just syntax errors, but like logical errors, um, all, the, all the stuff that the compiler does for you, basically. Um, Swift format will happily format that a file that wouldn't compile, um, you know, it won't format stuff that has syntax errors like you're missing a bracket. But it will happily format stuff where you're like you know, invoking classes that don't exist or whatever. It doesn't have that level of understanding of your code.
0: So we kind of mention it there, but to be clear, the difference between a linter and a formatter, uh, the formatter purely is sort of changing adding, removing white space, essentially, right? And, 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 and deleting some things and potentially adding things like adding self or removing self.
1: Uh, yeah so it, it goes it goes beyond white space it's it, it's basically it's doing pattern matching um but it's doing that on a very local level so it's you know it, it can it does now in fact identify functions and it can do stuff like you know it can remove arguments from the functions if they're not used that kind of thing but that's that's a very local problem like it can literally just look through all of the function body and see if that symbol appears again and if it doesn't it knows it's not being used right. um so that's 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 probably more than a typical formatter would do but it's still a fairly simple local thing for it to do swiftlint couldn't really do its job properly if it if it worked that way because it would it would generate a huge number of false positives like it would think you were doing something when you weren't and it would miss that you were doing something you know that kind of stuff
0: okay and then so so that's like the formatting that's format uh that's the job of a formatter and then a linter has can do formatting But first and foremost, the linter is sort of enforcing style, syntax,
1: uh, convention, these types of things. So I think, I mean, the way you're presenting that makes it sound more general than it is like, I'm not sure if I would say that that was the general definition. Uh, The general definition, I would say, is that a a linter identifies, um, you know, stylistic or, or potentially more serious um problems in your code and points them out but doesn't change your code and a formatter changes your code or rather it, it changes the um it changes the appearance of your code but with deliberately without changing the behavior right mm, right so um a formatter is kind of not concerned with the behavior like it, it's it's not supposed to flag Errors. It's not supposed to change the behavior. Like the, the formatter is seriously overreaching if the code behaves differently once once compiled after it's been formatted. Right. Um, that's definitely not the objective. Um, with a linter, I think that you know, a lot of what the linter does uh, overlaps with what the formatter does in terms of identifying things. So like, SwiftLint will absolutely tell you, hey, you've used you know two space indenting when you should have used four, or like you've you know you've wrapped this. Um, bracket onto a new line when the convention in your code base is that brackets start on the same line. Um, it, it can do that kind of like low level stuff and you know, operate at a purely token level, but it can also, you know, it's it's within its rights to also find much more significant things in your code. And you know, it, it is concerned with, uh, like errors that, that extend way beyond just the scope of, you know, Oh, you know, we prefer to use brackets like this. Um, in terms of like a linter changing your code and um, like automatically, you know, reindenting or whatever, that's I mean that's out of scope for a linter. Like a, a linter doesn't normally do that. But it's once it's identified something like that, it's a pretty reasonable thing for it to provide the option to automatically apply the fixes, and that's what SwiftLint does. So that that's the fact that SwiftLint can do formatting is not. It, it, it's not that that's that's within the scope of what a linter should do. That's just that that particular tool, you know, has additional scope, like it can do extra stuff. At the time
0: when you first looked at, uh, SwiftLint, uh, did it have all of the formatting rules that you were interested in?
1: Uh, it did not.
0: Okay. I wonder if it does, this, 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 sorry, go ahead. It, it, it has a lot more stuff now than when I first looked at it. Right, right. But it sounds like that speed, uh, the speed, um, benefit was really important to you so i'm kind of curious like where did the desire for the formatter uh, come from
1: um basically uh i just started on my first like big swift code base that hadn't just been written by me in in my spare time and uh there wasn't really any kind of standards being applied like every developer was coding in their own style um so i don't think there was any um Like nobody, nobody felt passionately that you know the code had to be one particular way. Um, But we weren't using any kind of tooling, and like I think everybody agreed that we didn't want to be sort of trying to fix this by like having somebody, you know, like point all of these things out in code review. Like if if you're if you're doing a code review in GitHub, and you know like every single line is indented wrong, it's not in any way useful to anyone for you to like highlight every single line in the project and say, yeah, this should be two spaces, right? Like that, that would be insane. Um, like the, on- the only thing we agreed on in terms of styles, like we all had our own preferences for how stuff should be done. Not, not strongly held, but like just everybody coded in their own way. But the one thing that we could all agree on was this is a problem that should be solved by a machine, not by a human. Like nobody should be wasting their time manually code reviewing white space. Or manually fixing it um, and we actually at the time had sort of a, a like no Swift lint policy <laughs> um, because we perceived that Swift lint would just be wasting everybody's time pointing out white space issues that we didn't want to fix right and again I mean that was that was misguided because um, SwiftLint can actually fix those automatically and that's probably that would have probably been a good enough solution and if we'd implemented that I might never have written SwiftFormat but I'm glad that I did because SwiftFormat now does a bunch of extra stuff um, that SwiftLint can't do or couldn't do Um, and it's nice having the flexibility to sort of say oh hey like I've noticed that we're we're doing this thing I'll just write a rule for that in this tool that I understand very well um, and you know we can fix that automatically.
0: I definitely relate to the desire to um, you know not have to think about the formatting, especially in a large group of developers. Uh, we went, you know, we dealt with that at Farmers, uh, especially with some um, overseas like contractors uh, that you know they don't they didn't really seem to care too much about um, style or formatting. Um, and so the cool thing was though that we just ran Swift Format once on the entire project, and then after uh, you know before we installed SwiftLint, and we ended up having both. Um, and then from there, from then on, you didn't really have to think too much about it and the diff wasn't that, you know, the diff wasn't that bad. Um, uh, are you, so I'm wondering, you know, I, we used at Farmers, we used Swift Format and Swift Lint, um, the team I'm on now we're using Swift Lint and I was like trying to, you know, ask them about Swift Format. Um, are you, do you use Swift Lint or what are your thoughts on using both?
1: Uh, we use both um we use uh, SwiftLint. we've kind of deliberately turned off all of the stylistic stuff so like it doesn't warn us about white space um it, it only warns us about um you know coding errors or, or like coding bad practices uh, there's a few exceptions so like uh, we have like a line length limit which isn't currently something that swift format tries to enforce um but mostly it's things like oh you've used a lot of force unwrapping here like that's that's probably not a good practice you know th- that kind of stuff which swift format absolutely doesn't Like I could easily write rules in Swift format to detect that, but it makes no sense at all for Swift format to try and fix it. Like only a human can fix that. So at the moment, like linting is out of scope for Swift format in the same way that sort of formatting is kind of out of scope for a linter. Um, And I I think the tools complement each other very well actually, because we use them in completely different ways. So Swift lint is something that we run on the server and we use Travis and uh, Swift lint is part of our, our Travis you know, build process. So it looks at our code after it's committed and, uh, you know, before we've landed our PR and it will flag up on the PR. Hey, you know, you've got these issues, go and fix them. And that's definitely a job that needs to be done by a human. It couldn't even theoretically be done by a computer at this point. Um, Swift format, on the other hand, runs on the client. So Swift format is a command line tool that runs on your Mac. Like uh, it's integrated into our um, local build process. So when we run our unit tests locally before we commit, um, Swift Format runs as part of that process and changes our code. Um, you don't really want to do that on the server because you know what, what you commit should be what you commit. Like you don't expect your code to change after you've committed it. Um, so, uh, in that sense, the tools are complementary—not not just because they have like complementary um, behavior, but also because the, they they literally operate in different contexts. Um, Swift format is something you do to your code base before you commit. Swift Lint is something that is done to check your code base after you've committed. And they, you know, if we did have stylistic rules in Swift Lint, um, we'd probably run into conflicts because they'd be configured slightly differently. Like it would be hard to keep them completely in sync with what Swift format was doing. And so they'd be constantly kind of like, you know, you'd have swift Format changing your code to a certain way and then swift lint complaining about it being that way and then you'd fix it manually and then swift format would change it back again and then swift lint would complain again so you'd have an <laughs> right,
0: endless sweep. right uh what would you say to somebody that says they're uncomfortable with uh swift format uh changing the short changing the source file uh sort of without y- I mean, obviously you run it, you run Swift format, but it kind of changes your source file without you really knowing. Do you have a certain workflow? Like you commit your work and then run Swift format, so you always see a Swift format diff and then maybe just commit amend or something. What would you say to somebody?
1: Uh, so we, we don't have a workflow for that, and the reason is basically because I have pretty high confidence in Swift sort of format based on having used it for some time and not had any issues. Right. Um, but I can, complete, I can completely understand that point of view. Um, I, I've had like friends, like, who are like old school developers who, who don't even use like source control and I just was trying to sell them on this tool and they were just like, but how will I know what it's done? It's like, well, you just look at the diff. Like what's a diff? Oh God. So <laughs> yeah, like it's, it's not for people in that environment definitely. But, um, you know, the, the typical development workflow is that you commit frequently, um, you could, if you were paranoid about it, like make sure you always commit before you ran Swift a format, and then you could just look at look at your diff and see see what it had changed. Um, it has a verbose mode as well, so like if you don't entirely trust it, you can run it in verbose mode, and it'll basically tell you all the files that it's touched and which rules it applied. Um, that was something that was requested by a, you know, somebody in the community, so like it's not something I use, but I, I added that. It wasn't it wasn't a hard thing to do.
0: Yeah, um, I, I might so. have seconded that feature
1: request. It may have even been you, actually. <laughs> I think, yeah. Now, now, that, now that I recall, um, so yeah, like uh, I, I can see why you would want something like that. Um, the way that we kind of use it is pretty much the way that you described how you used it, which is that we ran it once off, like on the whole code base, like made a massive diff, you know, ran it to check it hadn't broken anything, um, and like the first few iterations did, <laughs> but I didn't like commit until I'd fixed all of that. Right. Um, and then, like after that people just run it when they feel like it, pretty much. Like, you know, if you, if you don't run it before you uh, do a PR, then somebody might notice that, like, maybe, like, your white space is off or whatever. But we don't have, like, a, a very strong process for that because anything that gets missed will just get caught the next time somebody runs a unit test, so that's fine. Um, in general, it, you know, it just cleans up code whenever you run the unit test. That's how we're using it at the moment. Oh. I did have it running on every on every build, but the problem with that is that if it changes your file you lose your undo history, and that was frustrating. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, and I, I haven't been able to find any workaround for that. Um, and as far as I know, SwiftLint has the same problem if you if you use its formatting feature. So I think that's just until Xcode plugins um, become sort of more powerful than they are currently, I don't think there's any better way of doing that. There There is a Swift format plugin, so you can install it in Xcode and then run it via like a keyboard shortcut, which is another way to use it. Uh, again, that was something that was contributed by the community. Uh, Tony Arnold wrote that and, and, and added it, which is really cool. Um, but it's not how I choose to use it because, again, that's a little too manual for me. Like, I don't want to have to remember to run that every time I change a file. I just want it to be something that happens every now and then. And running it when you run the unit test, like hopefully you're running your unit tests pretty frequently. Um, so that, that seems to be kind of a good compromise.
0: What would you what would be like a one-liner? It sounds uh it sounds like you, you know, you use both and you like using both, uh, you know, SwiftLint, Swift Format. To me, it makes sense. Like one is specialized for linting, one is specialized for formatting. Seems like you have a good workflow. Uh what, what's like a one-liner you would say to uh someone to to not not necessarily convince them, but as a reason for using both?
1: Um well, I think you, I mean, uh, you want a one-liner. That's going to be, i have to spend some time composing that. <laughs> I need to re- refactor it a few times. Um, I, I think you, you pretty much identified it. Like they are, they are both tools which have different specialisms. They have some overlap. Um, like, you know, maybe in future Swift format, will have a linting feature. Who knows? But like right now, I'd say Swift format is the better tool. If, if what you want to do is formatting and Swift lint is the better tool. Definitely. If what you want to do is linting and, those two tasks are kind of complementary and separate. And you know you tend to do them in different contexts, like linting is something you do on the server, formatting tends to be something you do on your machine. So you don't get a lot of benefit out of using Swift Lint for both, other than, you know okay, it's always great that you can just use one tool for everything, but it can't do all the things that Swift Format can do, and it takes longer to run. And if you're running it on your laptop before you commit, that's particularly frustrating because it's not like when it's running on CI where you can just like submit and then go and make a cup of coffee or something. Like you have to sit there before you can press the submit button for it to finish. So um, pressing that down to one line, um, (laughs) I don't know. Uh, I'll leave that as an exercise for the listener. (laughs) All right, cool. Maybe I'll
0: I'll do that. Okay, uh, maybe like two more things before we're going to put the the swift lint versus swift format not that there's like a versus but like we're going to put that to bed um one is do you think that this is something that should be these types of things should be built into swift or do you think it should stay um as like a separate um external uh, tool
1: that's such an interesting question because like my instinct is yes, it should definitely be built in. Um, you know, like if you look at other platforms, like everybody raves about go format, um, you know, that with go, they just, uh, shipped go format. And then like, there's no controversy about how you style your code. Like, you know, like do you use almond style or K and R style? It like, there's nothing. Like it just aren't like it ends all of that meta discussion, all of that bike shedding, because it's like, there is one true format and here's the tool that implements it. Um, I, I kind of like that idea, but the, um, I can't remember the exact um, wording he used or, or which document it was written in, but uh, I'm pretty sure Chris Lattner shot down that concept with um, Swift fairly early on. Like he said, like we're not interested in in defining like a one true way of formatting your code, like you know whether or not you should use semicolons. Like that's that's never going to be something which is like something they want to enforce, and unless you have that kind of like one true style. I think it becomes um grating to have like you know Apple kind of giving you a tool which kind of like encourages one way of doing things, but maybe it's not how you want to do it and like it doesn't have the options that you want. And I've heard it described of say the JavaScript community that like one of the great strengths there is that anyone can, you know, invent a new popular tool. And that there's no like single organization sort of saying, hey, this is how everything has to be done. Um, you know like this is this is the standard moving forward like you know all of the sort of standard tools in the JavaScript world have come from disparate places um you've got like sort of typescripts um, like coming from one vendor and you've got you know Babel coming from another another and all, you know people use all of these different tools from all different places and that's really great like n- nobody nobody' imposing uh, sort of a one true tool on you whereas in sort of the Apple world we're kind of there's a sense that like if apple makes something you have to use that one um like even if there's a better one yeah and um, like we, we're seeing this this kind of emerging now with with swift package manager it's like well we we had coco pods and uh you know carthage and like a bunch of other things like and, and people like like those and they work fine and and a, a lot of man hours have been put into those tools to make them really great and then like apple releases this kind of like barely even half done things Swift package manager that like doesn't even really work and like only works on Linux and like immediately everybody's like oh well you know that's that's the death of Cocoa Pods then like we're not going to be needing that anymore <laughs> it's just like okay <laughs> I mean fine it's got like the Apple stamp on it but like this isn't actually a better tool it's not even close yet right um so it, it's a weird thing about the Apple world that we're so siloed like that and I'm not convinced it's a good thing so from a personal point of view, yeah, I don't really want Swift Format to be Sherlock because I've, I've spent a lot of time on it and, and, you know, like, I'm kind of proud of it. But <laughs> sort of separately from that, I'm also not sure it would be a great thing if, like, at some point we decided that, oh, well, you know, like, Apple's got this, like, formatter now and even though it, it doesn't do nearly as much stuff, like, you have to use that one because that's Apple's.
0: I I agree. I, uh, I think it would be cool if it was uh, built in the language, but then there would be this kind of feeling, it's like almost less open in that sense. I think a good compromise is, um, I I mean, it's not even a compromise, actually. What Apple could do or what what we could do as a Swift community in terms of building things into the language is like um, this uh, structured uh, editing library. So like just providing more and more powerful tools that allow uh, people like you to build um, third-party libraries, Uh, more accurate, more powerful, uh, more capable
1: tools. And I think in the near future that will certainly be the case because the, the Swift team have very limited time and they've got a lot of sort of bigger fish to fry than than these kind of tools. Right, and I'm so just hoping that like, I, I'm hoping that they're not sort of doing what Apple has unfortunately had a history of doing, which is letting third party developers like fill in the blanks while they're busy, and then like when they get round to it, just stomping all over us. <laughs> um, like I, I kind of hope that doesn't happen. Uh, I, I suspect it may do. What would be really useful, like what what we actually need Apple to do more than providing these tools, is to provide like more access to Xcode, um, because like Xcode's plugin system is very very limited, like it's it's almost unusable, um, and you know in the in the past people have made great plugins for Xcode, and and generation after generation of Xcode has kind of destroyed all of those because of perfectly legitimate like security reasons, but still like it's clear that you know, making it easy for third party formatting or or whatever kind of tools to to integrate with Xcode is not a high priority for Apple. And because of that, like nobody really wants to, you know, invest a lot of time in it. Like if if I had a commercial Xcode formatting plugin and then like, you know, Xcode, the new version had come along and just destroyed the plugin API like it did, I'd have been pretty annoyed by that. That That would certainly put me off wanting to like try and based my business around building good tools um, for Apple's languages. And I, I guess that's where most people are at the moment.
0: Yeah, it must be a really hard thing for the teams at Apple to balance. One thing that I've noticed um, that is a little promising for what you're saying in terms of Xcode becoming more accessible <laughs> is that you know Swift is... I believe technically a developer tool, and so as a part of the developer tools, you know, team, it's a product of the developer tools team. And uh, so that Swift is open source. Uh, the Xcode refactoring tools are open source, um, and that we as a community have more access to um, some people on the Xcode team. You know, a lot of Swift people, uh, for instance, Apple announced they're they're coming to Swift Summit. Um, so it seems like um, Apple is becoming more open, specifically like the developer tools team. I mean, maybe it's more focused on Swift, but it's actually, I think, the, the developer tools team. So that includes Xcode. So who knows, maybe there'll be a day where um, Xcode becomes uh, more open. I don't know if the whole thing would be open source or if that's even necessary. Um, what, what are your
1: thoughts on that? Um, I mean, I agree. So yeah, Apple has shown an un- unprecedented level of openness um, sort of immediately surrounding Swift, um, not just in terms of like the tools themselves, but also the community. Like, you know, all the Swift developers are on Twitter. Like you can just chat to them. They're like normal humans and they will like admit to you, like what they think is bad about the language and, and their frustrations. Like it's, it's, it's really strange because like you'd, you'd never really get that with like normal Apple people. They're all hugely locked up behind sort of PR walls. Um, so that's been really nice. Like, I think that's great. Uh, I don't know exactly where the line is drawn. So like Xcode is clearly not open source. I I don't think I've ever spoken to an Xcode engineer that I know of. Um, uh, And, you know, most of the the libraries are not. And I I don't think they will be in the near future because I think that crosses over into kind of more of the sort of Apple secret source that they're very protective of. Uh, No pun intended with source there. (laughs) Um, So... yeah. (laughs) Uh, I, I, I can't see Xcode being open source in the near future. Um, I think there would be probably quite legitimate security concerns around that, and also I, I think it would be sort of counter to Apple's culture. But I, I, I'd love to be proven wrong. Um, I don't think it's necessary though. Like I mean, I, I think they can, I think they could open up, you know, Xcode to plugin developers without needing to make the whole thing open source. Okay. Um, what what we what we need is relatively minor. Um, it's just that I don't think it's anybody's priority.
0: Well, uh, you know, we have people that listen to this podcast that, you know, work in, uh, on those teams. So have we are we being specific enough or do you want to talk a little bit more about what you would like to see at least the first step in terms of uh, Xcode or portions of it becoming more open?
1: Um, I mean, like I should probably file a radar like I don't know if a podcast is the best way to communicate this, but I mean, to give some sort of concrete examples rather than just like general Apple bashing. Um, so the, the the issue with Xcode's current plugin system is that you can basically select a range of text and then you can either um, make changes to that range of text or you can make changes to the whole contents of the file. But you have no sort of context on the project itself. So you can't look at other files in the project. You can't like access the file system. Um, the plugin itself can't even have any kind of UI at all. Um, like you couldn't, you couldn't like implement a search box, I don't think. Um, if you want to do any kind of configuration whatsoever, you have to basically build that into a separate app and then have that communicate with the plugin via XPC or like the, the file system or something. Um, so I mean, it's, it's essentially impossible to build anything sophisticated in terms of like a, a a tool that interacts with your code as an Xcode plugin. Uh, It can really only be just like a, a fire and forget command line option. Um, you know, the, the swift format plugin has zero configuration. It just, uh, it basically looks at your file and tries to guess what configuration you want. Um, because there's not like, there's not really any way, even if I was to add configuration, it would have to be global. There'd be no way of adding per project configuration. People have said, Hey, couldn't you put like a YAML file in your, in your project and then the, you know, the plugin could read that It's like that would be ideal, but no, you can't because the plugin can't access your project. <laughs> um, so just that change alone would make it hugely more useful.
0: The new uh, version of uh, Xcode plugins, I believe, was announced at DubDub um, two years ago uh, with Xcode 8. Were there any improvements this year with Xcode 9?
1: I haven't actually looked. So, yeah, perhaps this is all already obsolete. Um, <laughs> you know, there's so much to catch up on. So, like, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I didn't hear about it. I, I feel I, like that's I, something I, I would have heard of. Exactly the same for me. Like, I, 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 I think I would have heard that by now if it had changed, but. I, I haven't actually verified that.
0: Yeah, and they would have also mentioned it probably, like in um, one of the you know one of the big keynote, not keynotes but sessions. You know, they usually mention that kind of stuff in the big sessions. So, okay. Well, right. uh, last quick thing before I want to take a break for, for announcements um, is: Have you considered? Um, I, you know, I know you're really busy, and and with your spare time, you do a lot of open source work. But have you considered? Uh, you know working with Swift open source like contributing to the actual open source Swift project
1: um it's a good question like I've sort of considered it at a very kind of like abstract level the problem with actually doing it is um, most of that code base is like C++ right. so I actually have like zero knowledge in that like that's not my area of expertise at all I mean obviously it's it's not a million miles away um, but it's that would be that would be a huge leap for me. Like there would be a lot of stuff I would have to learn. And I mentioned before that I'd much prefer to write code than read it. <laughs> that would be a huge re- code reading exercise. Um, I, like, I kind of just feel like I wouldn't have a lot to contribute there. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, and I think your contributions yeah. to Swift open source in terms of like Swift format, et cetera, uh, is more than enough. Uh, um, I just, uh, I don't. Know, I wonder if like. The day will come that uh, people like are start starting to be interested in doing Swift Dash format, and then who knows, maybe like with all your ex- experience and expertise, um, you you would do that. But I'm sure you know you're a pretty busy guy. For instance, the uh, other library we're going to talk about layout. You know, you've been working on that, so it seems like you always have a big project you're working on.
1: Right, and I I do have limited bandwidth, so I can only do really one thing at a time. Like so. Swift format it's it's kind of in maintenance mode now like uh, you know I'll fix bugs quickly if people find them because that's a serious problem and it affects me as well but I'm not really adding on like any major features at the moment um, right. because I've my, my focus is elsewhere and like realistically as I said I think the future of Swift format is that it will get replaced like uh, it will almost certainly get you know Sherlocked by you know Swift dash format um and that's okay. Like, I'm kind of okay with that. So I'll just keep maintaining it as long as people think it's useful. And at some point when, like, I'm, somebody tells me that Swift dash format has caught up and you know, overtaken it, then I'll, I'll, I'll sunset the project. Like that's, that's, that's its future. And I think that's fine. Like, you know, it, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't need to last forever. Uh, it, it, it's to fill a temporary need until somebody else feels that better. Um, if they don't feel it better, then I'll keep maintaining it.
0: All right, I want to take a quick break for two announcements, uh, and then we're going to uh, end the episode with a conversation about um, Nick's uh, new open source project uh, layout. Uh, Hopefully we can talk about just general open source, um, like what's it like being an open source contributor, and uh, also maybe learn a little bit about how uh, Nick got into programming. Uh, the conversation kind of got away there because it was just really good. So sometimes we do things in reverse. Uh, in any case, uh, announcements. Uh, the first is that I will be emceeing alongside uh, Andy Hope at Swift Summit this year. So if you are going to be in San Francisco, if you're going to be at Swift Summit, hopefully we get to meet up. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And just wanted to shout out uh, Swift Summit uh, you can go buy some ticket, you know, you can buy a ticket right now. Hopefully your work will pay for it. Uh, really, really cool conference. I was there last year. I was lucky enough to get sent uh, by farmers and just had a really, really good time and really looking forward to going again this year. Apple is uh, participating. A couple engineers are going to be there presenting and also leading some labs, which is really, really cool. So yeah, look out for me. I will be on stage um introducing some of the speakers. Uh, the next uh, and last announcement is uh, that I just wanted to say thank you to um, Apple and the Swift team. Um, there's a, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of cool people out there in the Swift community and I talk a lot about about them. Um, but if but I want to take this time to thank the, um, you know, Apple Swift team, like the, the Apple employees that work on Swift, you know. Uh, I'm sure you heard some of the names, uh, you know, like Ted Kremenik, Joe Groff, uh, Doug Greger, uh, Michael Ilesman is is, is uh, also there on Twitter sometimes. Um, uh, yeah, and I just wanted to say uh, thank you guys for all the work that you do. Um, okay, that's it for announcements. Um, so let's get back to our conversation with Nick. Uh, before we uh, get into um, open source again and layout, I just wanted to quickly find out uh, you sort of mentioned it there you said uh, like learning C++ would be like a mile away or or not a mile away But like you don't know anything about C++ my guess though Looking at all the work that you've done in open-source like is that you've been programming your entire life. So um, How did you get into programming?
1: Uh, well, it's not been my entire life, but I'm fairly old so it's probably been like many of your listeners entire lives <laughs> um, I Started programming when I was 12 Uh, I guess like I, I got my first book about programming when I was 12. It probably took me a while before I actually did anything that would be described as programming. Um, I was probably copying like quite a lot of listings from magazines and stuff, which was, which was the fashion in those days because we didn't have the internet. Um, so, uh, I'm, I'm 36. So to, you know, that's basically 20 years, no, 24 years. Wow. It was 20 years the last time somebody asked me, um, (laughs) (laughs) It's quite scary. Uh, So, yeah, 24 years is how long I've been programming, which is is definitely like the the age of your average developer, probably. So that's that's pretty terrifying. Um, I started programming in BBC Basic, which uh, I don't know how many people like. I think everybody's heard of Basic, right? Uh, That's the language that you shouldn't learn because it ruins you for programming. So that (laughs) that was the language that I learned. Um, I can't. I can't remember anything like, uh, I mean, I I can remember the sort of canonical BBC basic program, which is like, you know, uh, 10 like print. Nick is great. 20 go to 10. Um, (laughs) That's that's, that's like the first program everybody writes. It's the hello world of of BBC basic. And that's that's an infinite loop. Um, Beyond that, I, I think I I would think I was in the wilderness with programming for quite a long time. Like I didn't really know how to move on from that. Uh, the, that was a system that was already obsolete when I started, you know, programming on it. Um, the BBC came out in 1981, which was the same year I was born. So I started programming that 12 years later, I had to buy one sort of secondhand from a jumble sale. Wow. Um, and, uh, well, that's a, that's a boot sale for the American audience. Uh, um, <laughs> so, uh, after that, I, I got an Amiga, which is another system that probably nobody's really heard of. Um, and yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't really do any useful programming until probably like my very late teens. Um, I did, did some stuff with, uh, like visual basic and, uh, a, a language called real basic, which was like the Mac version of visual basic. And I, I used that for quite some time. Um, and then I actually got my first like real job, like after university as well. So, okay. So I skipped a step there. So, In the arrogance of youth, I decided at like 18 that I already knew how to program. So it would be silly to do a computer science course because like, what could they possibly teach me? Um, So I did electronic engineering and after three years that taught me that I didn't like electronic engineering. So uh, I did a master's in computer science, a one year course, um, which kind of opened my eyes to what what there actually was in, in programming like all the stuff I didn't know about, like data structures and algorithms. And I found that really, really like exciting and fascinating. Um, and uh, so then I got a job as a, as a programmer, as a, as a front end web developer. Um, and it was kind of like a, a CSS and HTML job, but you know, I discovered JavaScript and decided to, to turn it into a JavaScript job <laughs> so that I could enjoy it more. Um, and wrote loads of crazy stuff in JavaScript and did so much harm, um, like by, you know, writing like JavaScript that made masses of requests to the backend and made the service fall over the, the, uh, the backend team actually sort of brought me into their team so they could keep an eye on me. <laughs> nice. Um, and, uh, under their sort of, uh, guidance, I learned mm-hmm. a little bit of Java and, um, a little bit more about how to actually program, um, uh, and yeah, that, that pretty much went from there. So I, I was a front end web developer um, of increasing levels of seniority, writing increasingly uh, overcomplicated JavaScript stuff until 2007, which you, you may recall is the year of the iPhone, right? And uh, yeah, when this came out, like, so I'd, I'd still been doing some desktop programming in mostly in real basic in my spare time. I'd never learned Objective-C or Cocoa or anything like that. It looked way too complicated. Yeah. Um, and then the iPhone came out. I was like, I, I have to program this thing like this. This is amazing. Um, there was no SDK for the first year or so. So it, I guess it wasn't until like late 2008, 2009 that being an app developer was a possibility. But I learned Objective-C. And uh, after, you know, some initial teething problems, I really liked that. And, uh, yeah, that was kind of, you know, that was, that was how I got into what I do now.
0: Would you I've say? have been doing that ever since would you say that uh, programming or software development is a passion or more just like a job or a career or both?
1: Oh, it's definitely a passion. I mean, I basically don't ever stop programming. Like I, (laughs) I, I I sleep and I program. Um, I I have to do a little bit of parenting as well. Uh, (laughs) Uh, not that, not that that's a chore of course. Uh, but no, like, I mean my, my hobby is my career and my career is my hobby. Um, you know, at various points in my career, I've done quite different programming in my spare time than I did during my day job. But I've always basically programmed all day and then gone home and programmed all night. Um, and yeah, I, I really enjoy it. Um, you know, I wouldn't do it if I didn't. When did you discover
0: this? Or when did it become this uh, passion?
1: Like Ever since, like, when I, when I first picked up that book on... You know, it was like the Usborne book of BBC basic or whatever it was, uh, you know, back when I was 12, like, it was like, this was obviously the thing I wanted to do. I, I never really stopped wanting to do it. Um, from that point on, uh, it took me a while to sort of actually really understand what it was and get any good at it. But uh, it always seemed to me like that was the thing that I should be doing with my life. What
0: is it about programming or software development or, or you or the way that you've, um, sort of uh, interacted with it um that you've been able to stay so passionate about it
1: so for a long time I, I never really produced anything um as a programmer like i wrote a lot of code but it never really got to the point where i could ship anything and that was really frustrating like for, for years i kind of I had all these ideas and these, these apps i wanted to make um and i do like anywhere between zero and like 75% of them, and then would kind of lose interest and move on to the next thing. I must have, I must have written like a a parsing library, like 50 times in in multiple different languages, and, you know, like got to the point where it was actually good enough to like do something with and then lost interest and never used it. Um, and I think what changed all of that for me was uh, open source. So, like, Open source wasn't really a thing when I was a, with as a child I and mean, maybe it had a different name, but I had never heard of it It wasn't really until I started doing iOS development that I became aware of like GitHub as a, as a concept uh, and that the idea that you could kind of like write code and put it on the internet for people to use um, And so why that changed things for me was because it 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 made the shippable like unit smaller so it reduced the shippable unit from being an app to being a framework, and it, it, I turned, you know, it, I discovered that a framework was a thing that I could write and ship before I lost interest, <laughs> which apps had almost never been. So then, like, you know, all of these kind of libraries that I'd previously been writing for my apps, I just wrote those and and released them, and like never actually wrote the apps. Uh, uh, I mean, I I have made apps. <laughs> um, Usually for clients, though, where there's some kind of like extrinsic motivation for doing it, like you don't get paid if you don't Um, But I've made very few apps for myself because I've never had quite like the motivation necessary to do that That sort of, you know, they say like You know, you do the first 90% and then you've got the the last 90% left Um, I've never managed to do the last 90% unless like somebody's got a gun to my head (laughs) but uh, With, with open source, like I've, I've just sidestepped that problem. And that's why I, I produce so much open source, right? Because most of the open source I make is like the sort of the shattered dreams of the apps that I was going to make. Like, <laughs> you know, they, these are all the components that I needed to build this app. I just never made the app. So let's
0: move on to... Uh, well, actually, <laughs> I want to ask you about Swift. Uh, you were doing Objective-C for a little while, it sounds like. Uh, What were your initial thoughts when Swift came out and like how how did you react? How long did it take for you to just jump on the Swift sort of uh, train?
1: I was pretty late to the Swift train. So I I watched the uh, iOS 8 WWDC with kind of bated breath like everyone else. Sorry. (coughs) Um, And I was like blown away. Like there was so much announced that year. It was amazing. They had like scene kit and, and all this crazy stuff. And... Swift was really exciting, and I I, I dived straight in, and I like got the Swift book that Apple put on iTunes. Um, like, I I read all about it, and then, I guess I didn't really have anything I could do with it. So at the time I was working at, um, I think I was at Facebook by that point, and Facebook is like an all Objective C shop, and they have very good reasons for that because like ABI compatibility is a deal breaker, and they have you know millions of lines of code and like all of this custom tooling that works with objective C that wouldn't work with Swift without huge amounts of developer effort. So there wasn't really any opportunity to use it in my day to day job. Um, I kind of tried to force myself to use it a little bit. I, um, I adapted a few Ray Wendelich art- uh, articles um, from like objective C to Swift as kind of like a, you know, useful way of teaching myself the language. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of, after my initial enthusiasm, I sort of decided I didn't really like Swift. And I think partly it was, you know, because I couldn't use it, it like it would have been frustrating to have liked it and not be able to use it. So I decided that I didn't like it because that, that made my life easier, right. <laughs> which is kind of strange in retrospect. But that's sort of how I felt at the time. It was like, well, if I can't use this, then I'm going to pretend it's bad. Um, I I think there are like I mean there are still some holdouts like there's a lot of there's a lot of people who feel strongly that Swift was a was a mistake a misstep for Apple and I I do understand where they're coming from and I kind of agree tentatively in certain ways like Swift is definitely a step backwards in terms of you know stability and developer productivity by some definitions Um, you know it makes our apps like 10 megabytes bigger like hello world. In, in, Swift is 10 megabytes, which, you know, there was a time when I would consider that like completely unacceptable. Um, and you know, it, 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 creates all kinds of problems. Like it breaks existing tooling, um, like slow compile times are really frustrating, but it's, it's so much better as a language, um, in many ways, uh, that like, I kind of feel like the people who don't like it are mostly the people who just haven't used it very much. Um, and I'm sure that's like a sweeping generalization that will, will bring me much hate mail. But, you know, I was kind of one of those people like when I hadn't used it much, I could find all kinds of reasons why it was terrible. And I would latch on to every like reason that people would give me like, oh, long compile times or, or, or but having actually used it now sort of solidly for uh, you know, over a year, like I just can't imagine going back at this point. Um, like there's there's the way that the way that you program in it seems so much better than the way that you program in objective C. And I think that's the thing that like when you first start programming in Swift, you, you kind of, you're just writing objective C in Swift and it's quite clunky when you're doing that. And if you're interacting predominantly with objective C libraries as well, like there's not really very much difference. And it, it, it kind of adds a lot of overhead that you didn't have an objective C because it's trying to make stuff that's inherently weakly typed or like, you know, unknown typed or uh, inherently optional. And it's trying to kind of like give you some safety around that. And mostly that just gets in your way. But when you're writing pure Swift, and of course, you know, I mostly write libraries. So like where possible, I'm, I'm just writing pure Swift. Um, that's that's a wholly different experience. And that's really very pleasant. And now, like I, as I said, for, for me, that's much more pleasant than writing Objective-C was.
0: It's interesting. I never heard anyone mention that they think uh, Swift was a, like a bad idea. Uh, I could. I understand that, though, um, if you were you really invested in Objective-C, uh, you know, why not just make Objective-C better? But the perspective I have is, uh, you know, a much more long-term sort of vision of of why Swift. Uh, and I think, it, it, to me, it seems like the smartest, one of the smartest decisions uh, they made uh, in the most recent, like, you know, last few years, uh, let's say, Swift came out 2014, so I don't know, last like 10 years or something, maybe besides the iPhone. I would say it's probably like one of the smartest things they ever did because um, being an Apple developer is now that much more accessible. I would never have been um, a part of this community if it were not for Swift. Uh, Objective-C is just too much of a barrier, and I think a lot of people would relate to that. And uh, when it comes down to it, you know, Uh, people is is what's really important, you know, and uh, the more and more people Apple can bring onto their platform as developers, I think long-term is is, the better it will be. So, Uh, but I, but I understand that if you're totally uh, invested in Objective-C. Okay, well, let's, let's do this. Um, You're, you're using Swift uh, in production now. It sounds like you're building uh, Swift uh, uh, libraries. Let's talk about this other library you guys just um, open source. It's actually on uh, the Shipstead um, GitHub. It's called Layout. Can you just tell us a little bit about it?
1: So, uh, Layout's something I've wanted to build probably since I first started doing iOS development. Maybe in, in concept, it's possibly something that I wanted to build even longer than that. It's. Um, I don't know how to kind of describe it succinctly. I'm, I'm, I'm not very good at the one-liners, as we discovered earlier. <laughs> um, it's, it's basically a replacement for nibs and storyboards. Um, now, this is like one huge area of sort of division in the iOS community, like the do you like interface builder or don't you question. Right. And uh, we probably probably don't have time to like plumb the depths of that. But I'll, I'll just give a brief overview of why it's not a good fit for what we're trying to do. So we have a a distributed development team of, um, you know, like maybe a dozen developers working on a single code base uh, across different time zones in different countries. And um, like, I think one thing most people agree on is that it's difficult for multiple developers to make concurrent changes to a storyboard or to a nib file. Right. Um, The reason being that it's a, it's an opaque format. It is XML, but it's, it's full of a bunch of machine generated IDs. If you change one thing in the file, it's going to change a bunch of different things in different places. Very noisy commits. If you try and merge that in Git, it's probably going to fail and then you're going to have to hand merge it. And when you hand merge it, you're pretty much just guessing what the right thing to do is. Um, nobody can code review your changes to that nib file. You can't look at somebody else's nib file and say, oh yeah, they've, they've made a sensible change there. Like you, It's just like not human interpretable. So it's a very bad fit for kind of like a collaborative development process. Um, I personally think it's also not that great, like as a tool for many, many other reasons. Um, It encourages like copy and paste coding magical numbers. Um, You know, like there's not really any tight integration with the type system or your code base at all. So if you have constants that you're using for things like fonts and colors and stuff, you can't really reuse them in your nib file. You're just going to copy and paste those values. And then if they change later, Compiler's is not going to tell you. So I think there's a lot of problems with, um, with interface builder and kind of the modern development process. And that's, that's gotten worse since Swift, not because it's actually gotten worse, but just because like Swift is so much better that we're now more conscious of it. Um, so I've wanted to replace, um, nib files ever since I started iOS development. And that's because I came from a web development background and One thing I learned very early on in web development was like all of the GUI tools for building UI were utterly terrible, like really bad. They just generated horrible code that that was really sort of, you know, depressing for any developer who knew what they were doing when they looked at it. And so I kind of, even though I didn't really have any reason to think that what NIP files was generating was bad, I just felt very uncomfortable about the idea of using like a, a GUI tool that's doing stuff I don't understand. Um... And I would much prefer something more like HTML um, where I could sort of just like, you know, have complete control over what what was being generated in my UI. And over time, I think my feelings about that relaxed. I was actually a big proponent of nib files at one point. Because um, once I understood them, like anything like, you know, the, the, there's no sort of preacher like a convert. But in the back of my mind, I always had this idea that like, wouldn't it be great if there was kind of like an HTML for Uh, iOS development and a lot of people have tried to do this and uh, I've, I've never seen a solution that I thought was kind of quite the thing that I wanted and There are a lot of problems with trying to do it because if you're using sort of HTML type syntax, you know The only way that you can bind stuff is at runtime Which means like stringly typed stuff and weak typing and you know You're reintroducing a lot of the problems that Swift is trying to solve, which You know nib files also have so I kind of put it on the back burner and I, I didn't really think about it for a long time. And then I had this kind of new idea, which was um, uh, implemented in the form of a library, as most of my ideas end up being, which was uh, expressions. So expressions are basically sort of runtime evaluated um, code, I guess. Uh, it's not using JavaScript. It's just like its own, own little interpreter. Um, but they're not sort of procedural code like JavaScript, they're, they're sort of pure functions, essentially. So the idea was, well, what if you specified your layout, not in terms of, um, constants, like, you know, you don't say that the the top and left of your, of your view is at position 10 necessarily, but you, in, you, uh, express it as an expression, which is a dynamic thing that can be reevaluated. Like how would that work as a, as a paradigm for doing UI? Um, and this is kind of so to give a bit more background, uh, before ships that I was working at uh, Facebook and uh, most of the time there, I was working on the react native library. So I was, I was building the sort of iOS interface for that. Wow. And so I had, I had a lot of exposure to this you know, react paradigm, this new, this new way of doing programming. And, uh, I think there's a lot to be said for it. Like, I think it's, it's definitely identified, uh, a good approach to programming, which is kind of like this top down data flow. And the idea that your, your UI should be a pure function basically. So, you know, your, your, your UI is a function that takes state as an input and produces views as output. And if the state is the same, the views are the same. And if you rely on that, you can kind of, you know, do a lot of cool optimizations. It's very easy to reason about. It's very easy to understand what's going on. It's very easy to kind of split split it up hierarchically, so like you can have like components which are properly isolated from each other, and so there was there was a, a lot of good stuff about this, but then as an iOS developer, I felt like you know React Native wasn't really native, like it was still it was still this kind of um, alien you know development workflow sort of optimized geared towards d- web developers. Um, you know cross platform was always a big part of it. And it was really a way for web developers to build apps which is a thing we've seen many times before and as a native developer i've rejected it many times before because i quite like ios like <laughs> you know I, I like swift i like um like the the ui kit um as, as as kind of dated as it is now like there's a lot to be said for UI kit it's very well designed um and i don't want to use some sort of like hybrid facsimile cross-platform lowest common denominator attempt at replicating it really. Agreed. So like after working on uh, React Native for a while, um I eventually left Facebook and, and joined Shibstead. And you know they basically said to me, hey, like you know, we saw you worked on React Native and like I think we have a bunch of similar problems we'd like to solve. Like maybe you can you know think about like what the solutions to that might be, which is a, a that's a great sort of like blank canvas to be given. And you know, so my, my, my idea as for the solution for this was, you know, I, I started with kind of like this expressions library and sort of thought, well, what if instead of like a, a sort of JavaScript function generating your UI, which is very difficult to reason about really, like e- even the purity guarantee there is kind of more by convention than anything. Like you've no idea what that function is doing. Um, and because you've no idea what the function is doing, the only way that you can implement something like React is by basically looking at the output. So the way that React works is you put the input in, you run the function and then you look at the output, and you compare the output to the previous output, and then you change whatever has changed. This is a very clever way of doing it, but it's it's basically a clever solution to work around a limitation, which is that you can't actually reason about what your render function is doing in React. Like people could put any kind of crazy JavaScript in there. Um, it could be accessing global variables, it could be doing all sorts of things. So I thought, well, if I, instead of JavaScript, if I, if I write my own expression language, I'll know what it's doing because like, I'll be evaluating it. So I can make that something that you can statically analyze. And then I can do all kinds of like theoretical optimizations that aren't really possible in React. Uh, the main thing being that I don't need to look at the output. I can just look at the input. Um, like given the input and a knowledge of how the expressions work, I know everything that they could possibly do and so that seems like it's a more solid foundation for building something like this. I'm sorry, I know this is all very, like, theoretical. No, <laughs> and, I really uh, like, like this. Um, Please but continue. <laughs> to my mind, this was, a, this was a better solution. Like This 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 felt like more like uh, it had potential to be more optimal. Uh, it had potential to sort of solve the problem in a better way. And also, at the same time, like, there was a bunch of other things I didn't really like about React. Uh, i wasn't completely sold on the idea of mixing templates and code um, like you know as again as a, as an old web developer that seemed you know like we, we used to do that back in the day with like php we kind of you know you generate like HTML inline inside your PHP code and that, that tended to end up pretty bad um, I think react has done it much better i'm still not sure it's the right solution and the other thing is of course that it it doesn't really it's not really native development so I thought well what if you know, what if I could build React Native for iOS developers, Uh, you know, just for iOS developers. So you're just using UI views, all the stuff that you're already familiar with, you know, all the properties and views and classes and everything are all the same, like, they're the standard ones that are built in, I'm not trying to replicate anything. Um, And what if it used expressions instead of JavaScript. And so that's what I built. So layout is basically uh, sort of an XML format, which lets you define your views, um, you still write all of your controller logic in in Swift as normal um, but you can you know you can write your views as an XML file all of the you know the nodes are UI view classes all of the properties are the are the real properties but all of the values are expressions so those can be you know d- runtime evaluated they can have any kind of complex logic in there that you want um, you bind your data from your view controller, but then the the UI is free to like re-render itself when the screen size changes because you've turned you know you rotated from portrait to landscape or you know if you if you press a button it can inject new state into the view and then the view can then recalculate what it should be doing based on that. So it's quite similar to the React model, but it's uh, you know aimed at people who are already iOS developers.
0: Okay, so thank you for sharing the sort of the The why there was a little bit of what there, but I wanna I wanna be a little more sort of clear on the what. So I'm I'm looking at the readme right now. Um, You so the developer would create a layout node, um, and the layout node contains the uh, whatever number of uh, views like uh, UI view, you, uh, you know, UI button, UI label, and you're defining. The, uh, like the, the look and feel like the look and feel of it, or you know the content. So you you say like what color it is, what the font color is, the text alignment, what's the text inside. But you also are constraining it as well. Uh, I don't know if baby constraining is, is not the right word, but you're defining its size and its position in the in the coordinate system. Um, so when you create the layout node, that is that's sort of what you're defining with the layout node type, correct?
1: Uh so perhaps the like the introduction in the README may not may not give quite the right focus. Um layout node is like the underlying implementation, and that that may well change in future. The 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 sort of the core concept though is that you specify your sort of layout independently of the view. So like like React has a kind of virtual DOM, which is like a, a virtual representation of the view hierarchy. Um layout node is my equivalent to that. So like a layout node is like a, a thing that represents a view, but isn't a view, which is a useful abstraction. When you want to do things like be able to dynamically create and destroy views um, for various reasons. Uh, But the the uh, yeah, the basic idea is that the layout node contains like all the information necessary to create and manipulate a view hierarchy. Uh, So there's a layout node hierarchy, and that manages a view hierarchy okay well Um, well, let's let's
0: talk about like the point of use so i'm a consumer of of layout the the this library i want to you know install it into my project and i want to use it and i want to create um you know a view with a button in the middle where do i write that do i write swift code do i write xml where where do i write that
1: so you can write that in swift code but that I mean that that case exists as a, like a, a special case that probably wouldn't be the normal thing that you would do. You would normally write that in XML. So uh, if you have like an existing nib file, you can basically create an XML file and essentially just swap your nib file for that XML file. So the XML file can do everything that the nib file did as a first step. Um, your view controller would stay pretty much the same. You You might change the base class of the view controller. Um, And you'd like add a couple of functions to it. But basically, you wouldn't write a lot of Swift code in order to do that. Um, It would or you know, the Swift code that you write would be exactly the same as if you were using um, interface builder. Um, As a first pass, like once you've once you've made that conversion, then there's there's uh, things you can do differently. Like you can change your style of programming a little bit so you can get rid of all of the outlets and use state instead. So then instead of like when you um, press a button instead of. You know, going in via an outlet and changing a view directly, you might uh, inject state into your template, and then like all of the properties that are affected by that state would have expressions that reference state variables, so those would automatically be updated um, as a result of that.
0: Okay, I guess what I want to sort of get up uh, get to is like, how am I how am I initially creating my views? So you're saying that I'm going to write XML?
1: Yeah, you're going to write XML.
0: Okay, that's interesting. So, why? Like, I mean, you probably talked about this, but let, let's re, let's kind of review it. Like, why? Why do I want to write XML? Like, why don't I want to write Swift? Like, aren't I losing a lot of like help from the compiler? Uh, that's
1: a that's a very good question. And the reason you want to write XML is because XML is data, not code. So it doesn't have to be XML. I mean, it, it could have been JSON or, or YAML or like any of a dozen things. Um, there are good reasons why I chose XML, but I won't get into them now, but, um, the, the, I guess the killer feature, uh, of layout, which was actually almost an incidental feature. Like I didn't, I didn't think of this initially as being a primary objective, but I realized very early on that this is actually probably the main selling point. It, it's live reloading. Um, so you, live reloading means different things to different people. But in this context, it means you can make changes to your view, like layout, um, and see those changes without recompiling your app so this isn't necessarily for the purpose of something like over-the-air updates because all of your controller logic and everything is still going to be in swift if you're going to make any substantive changes to the way your application behaves you're going to need to recompile but when you're doing your initial development of your view that tends to be a period of like a lot of iteration where you're like adjusting spacing and changing font sizes and, and doing all kinds of stuff and you want to try it out at different like you know you want to see it in portrait and landscape you want to try it on um, like, you know, different uh, situations. And, you know, the nice thing about Interface Builder is it's got this WYSIWYG interface where you don't have to recompile when you when you change the layout. Um, and so by getting rid of Interface Builder, you're losing that. And what I've replaced that with is live reloading. So with uh, layout, you, you, you can create your XML file initially, compile your app once, and then you can add all of your views, set all of your expressions up, like, manage your layout, and do all of that without ever recompiling the app. Uh, you can see all of those changes happening immediately on, on the simulator.
0: And that's because it's constantly reloading the uh, XML file?
1: Uh, at the moment, it reloads when you there's a keyboard shortcut that you use in the simulator itself. Um, I've been considering whether it would be better or, or as a possible alternative, maybe it could like watch the file system for changes. But yeah, for now, you just do Command-R in the simulator and you will see the changes that you've made.
0: What is Command-R in the simulator?
1: It's uh, it's just a keyboard shortcut. Like it's uh, it doesn't it's not normally bound. Like normally, if you do Command R in Xcode, it's going to rebuild your app and run it. But if right. you do it in the simulator, it doesn't do anything. Uh, so I'm I'm intercepting it using UI key command or whatever it is. Uh, and that's, so
0: that's a part of the layout library. Yeah. And what does it cause? What does it cause the simulator to do?
1: It. It doesn't do anything to the simulator itself, but the layout library, um, basically. In you know, in your view controller, you've told it to load a particular XML file. Right. What layout does is it actually, uh, using some trickery, it, it finds the copy of that XML file on your Mac's file system. Right. Um, inside your project. And it loads that version instead of the one that's been bundled into the um, simulated Whoa. app. Whoa. So when you do command R, it reloads that file, um, including any changes that you've made since the last time.
0: Wow. Wow, that's super cool. Um, I feel like I've seen some some of this kind of like live loading UI stuff. Um, this is really cool. Okay, so you write your XML file and then you load the XML file in your view controller, uh, and then you update the file and you hit this shortcut and you're able to see this live loading. That's that's super cool, and it's it is um, serving the uh, the issue of um, complicated xml diffs like if you're just using storyboards because it's a more um expressive or easier to to understand xml file as opposed to like um the one generated by storyboards where everything it's just like kind of like gibberish in a way um so so is that you're like when you actually do your diff you're still diffing an xml file right but it's just easier to read
1: it's a it's a human written xml file there's no machine generated stuff in there at all okay so, like, yeah, if you add a view, then there will be, you know, an XML node that a human has put into that file right. in a sensible place. Right. Um, and if, you, if a human could write it, a human should be able to read it. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the difference. So, storyboards are XML, but they might as well not be because they're, they're really a sort of machine serialized format. They're it, not designed to be human read or written.
0: Are are you able to then take the uh, XML Uh, the layout XML and then load that into storyboards and then, not that you would need to, but then like have storyboards read it or is it just not, is it not, you don't have that conversion. It's kind of impossible probably.
1: Uh, I don't know if it's possible, but it's not something I've looked into. So uh, I'm not attempting to do that.
0: Right, okay. Because this was something I thought about recently uh, when looking at like a PBX Proj diff and thinking like, I wonder if Apple has considered uh, or the developer tools team has considered like making the PBX project file like a little more easier to understand. Um, and so this
1: is yeah. sort of like what
0: you're doing in a way.
1: I mean, that would be a very interesting problem to tackle as well. It's not some, not something that I've looked at. Um, I mean, th- that again can definitely be done because that's basically what CocoaPods does. So if you've used CocoaPods, you, you have a pod spec file, but you don't have a, an Xcode project. Um, it builds the Xcode project on demand from the much, much simpler, much more readable um, pod file. Ah, oh, interesting. Uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, that's that's probably easier. It's probably easier to build a project file than it is to parse one. But I'm pretty sure I've seen things that do that as well. So like, as, as unhuman readable as a PBX project file is, I think the format is defined and, and is known to some, some geniuses out there. Um,
0: Okay, so at the core then of this is an XML file that you're writing, and then, uh, then you you know you load it into your view controller, and you have this really cool live reloading feature. But you're losing the type safety of Swift. I wonder if layout could there could be like a Swift program where you write Swift, so it's type safe and auto completion that then converts your Swift to XML. If that's what you know, if that's what's required for layout to like sort of then actually load your layout, did you consider that, or would that be I,
1: possible? I've, I've considered going the other way. So at the moment, the same XML that you write is the XML that it's loading, you know, in your final app. Like it's going to bundle those XML files in your app, and you're going to ship them, and that's slightly non-optimal. Um, I mean, I haven't found any problems with it so far, but like storyboards have a compiled format, uh, which is actually a, a binary plist. Um, and I don't have currently have a compiled format. So my compiled format is just still <coughs> still XML <coughs> Sorry um, so uh, Ideally, I'd have like a, a machine generated version which would be sort of highly optimized and very fast for loading um, And one of the things I considered was well, maybe it could compile to Swift code rather than uh, a, a, like a data file at all um, I don't know if I'm gonna go in that direction partly because there's there's some complexities around, like, you know, if you have a script that does that in your, uh, in your build pipeline, your project's going to sort of exist in a state of not being able to compile until that file has been generated. So I don't know, there's some awkwardness around that. Again, this all boils down to the fact that Swift is a very static language, right? So anything that's being generated dynamically has to be known to the compiler right from the beginning, like before you hit compile and that, that isn't necessarily the order in which you want these things to happen. Um, I, I mean, so there there is, as I said before, there is a a, a way of writing these layout nodes. Like they, they have a Swift API for writing them, and I've tried to make it as, as pleasant to use as possible. Um, I'm envisioning that you would tend to use that maybe in situations where, like maybe inside a, a library or something where you don't necessarily want to have, um, you know, XML file resources that are shipped along with it. But you lose most of the benefit um, if you do it that way, because you, you lose this live reloading feature. So I, I, I'm looking at other ways of working around the, the static typing problem. Um, so one thing I should say is that uh, layout template files are quite strict in terms of the way that they're, they're parsed. At the moment, you know, that still happens at runtime, but when you load a template, it checks everything in the template, like it checks all the types, it checks all the properties exist. Um, if you're if you're binding to any outlets in your view controller, it checks that your view controller has those outlets and that they're of the correct type. It does a lot more kind of immediate type checking than storyboards do. So I think we've probably all had the issue with storyboards before where, you know, you load a storyboard and everything looks fine. And then you press a button and it crashes. Right. And it crashes because you would bound that to a, a, an action which you'd subsequently renamed or whatever. And there's no compile time checking of that. It, it just falls over at runtime. Right. So with layout, I check all of your uh, actions in all of your buttons and in all code parts immediately because I have, you know, because my expressions, um, you know, I I can statically analyze them. I, I know all the symbols that they're referencing internally. So I'm able to do that immediately, effectively at compile time. It's just that my compile time is runtime from the point of view of Swift. You know, I compile my template at runtime, but I do all of these checks at compile time from the point of view of the template rather than at runtime. So you're not going to get your error when you press a button, you're going to get the error way earlier. The other thing I should say is uh, on, the, on the subject of error handling, um, I've put quite a lot of effort into making the error handling kind of like really as, as friendly as possible. So these things shouldn't ever crash. I mean, if they crash, it's because I've made a mistake rather than it being by design. If you make any mistake, if your XML is malformatted, you know, you forget to close a tag, if you've used the wrong type, if you've referenced a class that doesn't exist, like any of these kinds of errors, um, you get what's called like the red box interface, which is something I kind of borrowed from React Native. Um, so it gives you a, a runtime error that's displayed in a friendly way inside your app. And you can fix the error and reload without recompiling and rebuilding your app. So the app should never fall over. That's and pretty it cool. Can even, it can even suggest. Uh, so like one of the latest features I added is um, because, again, one of the disadvantages of using XML is you lose autocomplete, um, you know, and a lot of the sort of things that the uh, Xcode IDE gives you. And because the plugin system is so limited, I can't put those back, even though I know a lot of that information. Um, but what I can do is I can, I can, when you get it wrong, I can tell you what you probably meant to do. So, you know, if you type the name of a property wrong, it will look at all the properties that do exist on that class it will filter them by like the ones that are the closest match to what you typed, and it will say, did you mean this instead? Um, and if you did mean that instead, you just retype it, and you do Command-R, and then it works. You don't have to you know, rebuild your app or try again. Wow. That's
0: pretty cool. So I, I guess I'm confused then, because I'm looking here on the readme, and it says option one, create your layout programmatically. But then we were just talking about the, the main way... You're saying that you create your layouts is using XML files, so I, yep. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm confused. I don't understand so so and then you just said that you do have a Swift API. so like can you create the layouts programmatically in Swift?
1: yeah you, you can create them programmatically or you can create them with XML. Okay. But creating creating them with XML is probably the better approach and and like maybe maybe my readme is suffering from a little bit of kind of evolved rather than designed in that respect. Um, you know, there was a time when XML wasn't available as an option. Uh, so yeah, like uh, I would definitely go the XML route, and uh, I, I think if you if you read a few f- lines further down, it will definitely suggest that to you.
0: Oh, okay, and that's and the main reason for that is the live loading, you'd say.
1: Yes, that I'd say that was the main reason.
0: Okay, so but then I guess what I'm wait so the the layout node if I create it programmatically is that API actually creating an XML file or can it? because then No, co- it's,
1: it's, it's the other way around. Uh, when you when you load an XML file it creates a layout node struct in in Swift.
0: Oh, so currently there's no way to go from Swift to XML. There is not. Okay, okay.
1: Uh, although okay. I mean that wouldn't be that difficult to do because they're they're mirrors of each other. The the XML file is actually parsed directly into Swift structs. I have my own XML parser um
0: so so like why wouldn't you just always have it load the layout using an xml file whether synchronously or or asynchronously and then just have a separate program outside where you define your layouts and they generate a file that your view controller is pointing to and then you have the best of both worlds you're you're writing swift so it's more type safe and you have the live reloading isn't that possible couldn't that be possible
1: so you mean if i had like a a, my own ide where you wrote
0: uh, layout nodes,
1: or, um, I guess, or you, you do it. You do it in Xcode, and then you'd have a script which turned them into XML. Yeah, you'd like have a Swift. I
0: guess it'd be like a Swift program, like a Swift script, where you're defining your layout nodes, and then it just spits out the XML file that the Xcode project that your view controller is like pointing to that file, and then it loads it.
1: I think I see what you're saying. So if you wrote your like your view in Swift, you could have a script which parsed your view independently of like. Swift's own parser, which is going to try and compile that view. So Swift would compile that that view and, and turn it into a class and, and run it. And at the same time, you'd have a script which would read that separately, turn it into XML, and then load that XML and replace the, the, the native version <laughs> effectively. Um, that's actually, it's not a million miles away from where I'm thinking of going with this. Um, so there's a few issues. So first of all, um, Writing layout nodes programmatically at the moment doesn't actually give you as much of a type safety win as you might imagine. Okay, and that's sort of the the other question I was going to ask, but sorry, go ahead. Right, so the reason for that is because the expressions themselves are still evaluated at runtime, and that's not a sort of, you know, limitation of the fact that I'm using XML, that's by design. Um, You know, I'm not really using auto layout at all in this. Um, You know, auto layouts... uh, Layout system is based on the idea of, of effectively defining all of your constraints as expressions, but they're very rigid expressions That you know each one of them has like a, a subject and a, a multiplier and a constant, right? And those are kind of represented um, you know, using like a, I don't know, internally they're probably a struct or something um, So there's there's like a very rigid
0: it's a, Native Native it's a formula. It's a formula. I think there's like some article that was written on it. So, okay. So it's like, it's its own expression. You're, you you yes. created your own type of expression? Yes. Wow. So Like your own formula.
1: Well, no. So uh, mine mine's like a formula-less system um, or like a free-form formula system. Like, uh, I don't know exactly what you'd call it. But in, in like, I, I think both, uh, so for me, the, the this is almost like a completely separate reason for creating the library, like totally unrelated to the problems with storyboards. But, uh, I've never been a huge fan of auto layout. Um, which shouldn't surprise you because I'm like Mr. Not Invented here. Right. So like I didn't invent it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I, I, for me, it was, uh, it it wasn't a good replacement for what we had before. I completely understand the reasons for doing it. I've, I've grown to like grudgingly respect it, but I feel, um, there's, a, there's an Alan Kay quote I quite like, which is that simple things should be simple and complex things should be possible. This is kind of like a, a, a principle for designing an API. And for me, uh, auto layout doesn't really meet those rec- criteria because it uses the same fixed expression for everything. So if you, if you want your view to be 10 pixels from the left of the screen, you can't just say, okay, like x equals 10. You have to say you have to phrase it in terms of this, uh, exp- like th- these, these, uh, this formula, right? One
0: size fits all expression.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's a one size fits all expression. That's that's a good way of putting it. So, like your formula is always, oh, it's got this constant and a multiplier, and uh, they've they've improved the API over time. So, like some of some of those you can kind of skip now in the API. Yeah. yeah. It, when it first came out, it was pretty horrendous trying to do this stuff in code because it was like every time you're going to create this NS layout constraint with fifty parameters. Right. Right. Um, and like most of them were weakly typed in objective C. So like there was plenty of opportunity to shoot yourself in the foot. So like, again, a lot of, a lot of my distaste for, uh, auto layout is probably based on my initial impressions, which you know, may have subsequently been improved, but, um, I still feel like under the hood, it's, it's, it's making the simple case very complicated for the sake of the complex case, which is rarer. Um, so what I've, what I've done with the expressions is like I- expressions are, they're like arbitrary, like, you, you know, 10 is an expression, um, max of, you know, parent dot left plus like, you know, previous dot right times like pi plus the first number you thought of is also an expression. Those are both expressions. So it can be as simple as you want. It can just be a number or it can be as complicated as you want. It could be like a 10 line long thing with like multiple like ternary clauses in it. And uh, to me, that's a much better fit for the problem domain, because generally speaking, when you're doing a layout, most of the things you want to do are very simple, and a couple of them are going to be very complicated. And sometimes auto layout is like most of the time auto layout is more complicated than you needed it to be. And occasionally it's not powerful enough to express the thing you want to express. Um, and so my, my hope at least is that with the expression library, you know, it scales to the, the, the problem. It can be simple when your problem is simple. It can be complicated when your problem is complicated. And uh, going back to what I was saying before about like the, the type safety issue or... or you know, doing it in Swift. The, the, the benefits of doing it in Swift. Right. When you write your layout node, what you basically do is you give it a dictionary of you know string to string for the expressions. Um, and whether you're generating your string dictionary in XML or in code, it's still stringly typed. So you, you don't really get a big win type safety-wise. Like You have to reference all the properties by name.
0: Right. In but order that, to do this
1: finding. That begs
0: like another question though, is like why string to string? So for expressions, why shouldn't expressions take like a certain type, like a width or a height, or a background color? These are like certain types, and I can get completion on that. Um, like why is it possible or is it because you you're what you were saying, like you you can take any expression. And so since you can take any expression, you almost like you can't think of every possible Expression and then give a type to it. Uh, does that make sense?
1: I so I do think of every well I don't think of every possible expression, but I I do runtime um, type uh, like introspection of your of your views. So I use the Objective C runtime because fortunately or unfortunately depending on how you look at it, UIKit is still all Objective C, and I go through the view that you're creating and I look at all of its properties and I get all of their types and I make sure that the expression that you're writing produces the correct type. And if it doesn't, you get a friendly error. But I have to do that at runtime because I don't have the level of integration with the Swift compiler that would be necessary to do that statically. Like I, I'm not reading header files or, you know, like doing any kind of integration with SourceKit. So So that, that's a potential future direction to move in. I mean, effectively, in order to make this useful for you to be able to write this stuff in Swift rather than XML, um, I would pretty much have to either piggyback on on the swift compiler or write my own swift compiler and then let you uh, effectively it would have to decompile no sorry it would have to it would have to it would have to parse your swift code turn that into a runtime expression in the same way that it turns your your like layout nodes into xml it would have to turn the like the content of your expressions which would be like native swift code it would have to turn those into my expression language and then evaluate them at runtime. Um, so effectively I'd be writing like a runtime Swift interpreter so that it could do at runtime what Swift currently does at compile time. Um, that sounds like a lot of fun. Like that's exactly <laughs> the kind of thing I enjoy doing. I'm, I'm totally up for doing that, but that's definitely like a version two type. <laughs> uh, oh, wow. Okay. That, that, that's, that's, that's not something that I can like, you know, feasibly do right now. Uh, I need to work my way up to that. Um, okay. and I don't take that as a promise either. Cause like, I have no idea, you know, like maybe I won't be on this project in six months or whatever, right? Like who, who knows exactly what the future holds. Um, but for now, like I have a solution that works and although it is, it's relying on, you know, weak typing, it's no more weakly typed than nib files, which are the thing it replaces. Okay. And in fact, it's much, it's much more strongly typed than nib files because it does all of this, uh, type checking for you. Um, at kind of creation time rather than just waiting for you to crash
0: okay yeah because like i just see like width height background and strings and i'm like that means i have to kind of remember all the potential sort of left sides uh do you have a workflow for for that for like remembering all the different keywords
1: well so i, I have two workflows one is i've generated like a, a auto uh, auto suggestion file for sublime text I picked Sublime Text basically because I had a quick look at all the APIs for all of the popular editors, and Sublime Text was the simplest. Um, so uh, that's not that's not me showing any favoritism. Like I'd, I'd actually never used Sublime Text before I started on this. Um, but yeah, if you happen to use Sublime Text, it gives you some limited uh, sort of suggestion for available classes and properties, which is it's not as good as as like native Swift editor. But you know, this is version one, so that's like, better
0: than nothing. I didn't know, yeah, I didn't know you could have something like that. I just assumed like, oh, it's a string, so it could be any string. Um, like it could be foo. But you're saying you created this um, sort of plugin for, for sublime text where if I'm in my expressions uh, parameter and I'm in my express you know creating my expressions dictionary, it might suggest width height or background color.
1: Uh, so it's not quite that good. but basically when you're writing XML in sublime text when you have this plugin installed, You know, if you type like UI, it's going to suggest all the list of known UI views. Oh, cool. um, Rather than just like leaving you on your own to try and guess what the view was called. And then when you're starting to type the property, like width or height, it's going to say, did you want width or height? Like, you know, it knows all the things it could be. It doesn't, for example, know that you can't have like a text property on a UI view. So if you start typing like TE, it's going to suggest text. Oh, okay. Um, but then that's where the sort of the, the second part of the solution comes in, which is um, when you try and run that, it's going to tell you immediately, hey, that property doesn't exist. Right. And, and not in like a sort of, you know, you'll find out later when you try and look at it. Um, and I, I hope to make my, my sort of like the, my immediate roadmap is to try and make that as early as possible. So right, right now, you don't get that warning until you display the view that contains it. Um, So like maybe if that's deeply nested in your app, you could miss that and then potentially ship it and that would be horrible So I want to do that analysis like at compile time preferably So uh, how would I do that? I'd I'd have a script which you'd run as part of your build pipeline That's going to look at all of your XML files and apply its runtime knowledge It has to be at runtime unfortunately because I only know this at runtime, but you know, we'll see but like first thing when your app launches it could look at all the XML files in your in your entire program look at all of their properties and see if any of them don't match up and then tell you immediately like first thing before you know app delegates even finished launching that you've got this mistake so i think that would be a big uh like safety improvement and then further down the line i'm going to start looking at maybe parsing your actual source file so i can do this statically before you've even launched your app but that's that's further in the future
0: yeah wow well really cool um is so is this expressions it's it's uh, technically what, like a couple files. Could that be a, a library in and of itself? Just the expressions?
1: Expressions is a library in and of itself. You'll find that on my GitHub page. Oh,
0: okay. Cool. Awesome. I'm going to take a look at that.
1: Um, yeah. So congrats. I mean, it, it's
0: already has like, you know, over a thousand stars. It's already been forked. You already have seven contributors. I mean, that's really cool. Uh, wh- who would you say this library is for? Uh, you kind of talked about it a little bit at the beginning of, of it, but like, who would you say this is so- for?
1: It's definitely for iOS developers. It's not for web developers who want to do iOS development, although I have had at least a couple of people say, hey, you know, like I, I used, I've just come from Android, or I've just come from like web, and this has made getting into iOS much easier for me because this is more familiar to what I'm used to. Um, so that's cool, like I'm, that, I'm pretty happy about that. But that, that isn't my target audience. My target audience mm-hmm. is existing iOS developers you want to be able to apply all their existing iOS knowledge without having to like learn a new framework that has loads of crazy new rules and different names for views and different properties and weird limitations that they're only going to discover after they've been using it for a while when it's too late to back out. So like layout has none of its own components. There's there's no like I mean, there is a layout view controller as it happens, but that's only to do the red box and, and, and error handling stuff. There's no like you know, layout label and you know, layout table view and all this stuff, right? Like it, it just uses the normal UI kit views um where necessary it adds some stuff by our extensions but it's it's the idea is that you use your your existing knowledge and you shouldn't really have to learn any new crazy quirks uh, in this thing so uh, that's the target audience it's it's like any iOS developer i i would encourage to use this i think it's the, the problem in particular it's solving is people who are chafing against storyboards because typically because they're trying to collaborate in a team environment and you know, they keep on treading on each other's toes and having to do painful manual merges and like back out their changes and reapply them because it's too hard to merge and, and that kind of stuff that, that we've bumped into. But I think even an individual programmer could maybe find that like they, they prefer this workflow, uh, to using a storyboard. Uh, certainly like, you know, I've built this tool for me more than anything. Um, it, this is kind of like what I would ideally like to use for doing iOS development.
0: Right on. All right, Nick, well, we are well over <laughs> an hour. I know we told you before we started recording we we're gonna try to keep it to to an hour or less. It's just not possible, especially with someone uh, like you that does so much uh, in the community. Um, but I think we can uh, end it there. Uh, let's uh, unless there's anything else you wanted to mention about layout, we can head over to the uh, rapid fire section.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would just encourage people to check it out on GitHub and read the README. It's a very extensive README file. I'm sure there's plenty in there that I've forgotten to mention.
0: Yeah, well, congrats again. And yeah, I mean, it does seem like there's a lot of interest in it. Um, and uh, who knows? May i mention that at work and uh, maybe test it out or maybe do a, a meetup on it and kind of play around with it. Um, all right. So let's get on to uh, the rapid fire section. Uh, so, Nick, uh, what drives you?
1: Uh, so yeah, this is, this is like one of those standard questions. And, um, I I guess like I sort of touched on this earlier. Uh, I've, I felt for a long time, like programming is what I want to do and I want to build things and I want to share them with people. And yet like, like I, I don't really have like a product I want to produce or like the various app ideas I want to do are all kind of they're just too big. Like, the, I, I know I'm never really going to finish them because I'll, I'll, I'll have moved on to the next new shiny thing long before I, I get to the point of, of having a shippable product. So what, what drives me, I guess, is just making cool things and sharing them with people.
0: Yeah, I like that. What do you do when you're not programming?
1: Um, I, I sleep. Sometimes <laughs> I eat. <laughs> I mean, seriously, like, you know, people ask me, like, how do you find the time to do all of this stuff? It's like, well, this is all I do. So <laughs> there isn't, there isn't really anything else.
0: No, uh, hiking or, uh, walking or, you know, no, I, I try
1: and avoid exercise, uh, if possible. <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> right on desktop or laptop.
1: Oh, definitely laptop. Uh, people laugh at me because I don't even plug in my external monitor at work. I just rock up with my 15 inch MacBook, Uh, not a touch bar, I should add. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I just, I, I, program the same way i'd program on the sofa
0: nice so you use a trackpad
1: yep no mouse no no external accessories i don't even use headphones like i'm, I'm a very weird developer by most people's stands
0: and so you you sit mostly no standing
1: yeah we have a standing desk now i should probably like i have i have terrible posture like really terrible like you you, you probably can't even imagine how bad my posture is like people laugh when they see me sitting um and you know i have I have like a family history of back problems. I have occasional back pain, like all the worst things. So I should probably try standing. But I don't, I sit.
0: Well, I mean, if you're not worried about it, um, but uh, yeah, maybe, maybe you could try standing. I don't know. Or fix your posture. It's I've, up I've to heard you. it's a
1: good thing, yeah. I need to get an Apple Watch to remind me though, right? Like I haven't. Oh, there you I, go. I haven't uh, I haven't won a watch for a few years. So yeah, With, <laughs> without without a constant nag to stand up, I think I'd forget.
0: So we mentioned Git earlier. Uh, Git from the command line, GUI, both.
1: Uh, GUI again. This will probably surprise most people. So uh, I'm, I'm a total Git novice. Uh, I've I've picked up a few tricks over the years. Like uh, working at Facebook taught me a lot because they they really heavily use their command line tools. But I use Tower, uh, which is quite a popular Git client. I think. Yeah. Um. And yeah, I I couldn't live without it. Like I can't really imagine. I mean, I know that you can do it, but I can't really imagine like visualizing the files that I've changed in a diff if I couldn't just like look at them and see them in a GUI. Yeah, (laughs) That feels like a really powerful feature. I think if I was using the command line, I would like constantly accidentally commit stuff I didn't mean to probably. Um, I I use the command line only for things that you can't do through the tower UI and that's not many things.
0: Okay, yeah, my coworker uh, Garo, he's uh, trying to get me to use tower. Uh, okay, so favorite text editor besides maybe Xcode, I'm guessing, is Sublime Text you mentioned earlier. Uh, well,
1: I mentioned earlier that I hadn't ever used Sublime Text before I had oh. to write a plugin for it. Oh, okay. Um, My bad. Again, very weird here. So I, I use a text editor that nobody's ever heard of called Sabitha Edit. Sabitha. Um, Sabitha Edit. Um, it's, uh I think it's a reference to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but not not a reference that I got until I read the readme file. Um so what, what's good about Subitha edit, um, almost nothing. Like it, 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 it's a very, it's a very, <laughs> that's, that's really harsh. Like, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's perfectly fine as a text editor, but that's the thing. Like, that's what I like about it. It's just fine. Like it doesn't do anything fancy at all. It like has no plugins. It doesn't even like, I, I think it does like, uh, sort of, you know, text coloring or whatever syntax highlighting, but I don't even use that. Like I just, I like it because it, it doesn't do anything clever. And the thing that really annoys me with text editors is when they do clever things like, you know, you type an open quote and they type the close quote for you and they always put it in the wrong place. And like they move they move your cursor around because they like they're trying to be helpful. And mostly that just frustrates me. Um, so uh, I like to be edit because I've been using it for a long time. Like I've been using it longer than many of these new text editors have even existed. And it, it, I think it's one like main feature is that it allows collaborative editing. So you can like sync up over Bonjour or something and it'll let like multiple people edit a single file. And I've never used that. <laughs> I have zero interest in that feature. Um, I just use it as a very plain text editor and I like that it doesn't do anything fancy. It doesn't like move my cursor around or, or insert code for me. And it also doesn't try and like save in RTF, which is probably the only reason I don't use text edit. Because um, whenever I use text edit, it tries to like save as a rich text file, which is not what I wanted. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's what I use. It's like the, it's kind of the closest thing to sort of notepad that you can get probably.
0: Tabs or spaces?
1: Uh, spaces. Um, I like the idea of tabs, but they really don't work in objective C where you have to like align colons mm. and they don't work much better in Swift. And like, uh, you know, nobody, if you use tabs, then like weird places are going to indent your code wrong. So like, I think GitHub treats tabs as eight spaces like, oh. for some like, like why would you want that i don't know but um yeah uh, like i probably have a bunch of files that have mixed tabs and spaces because i've forgotten to configure my editor correctly and that's horrendous but i have Swift sort of format to fix that for me yeah uh, so yeah uh, space spaces i've i've everywhere i've worked they've always like demanded spaces it makes more sense for objective c which is kind of you know i've been doing that for so long i've forgotten that there was anything else before swift uh, so yes, yeah, uh, but it's not a it's it's more of a pragmatic decision than a sort of deep deeply felt like philosophical. This is the right solution
0: Test or no test?
1: Uh, you mean like unit tests? Yeah uh, so I'm a, am quite a convert to unit tests um, Like when I was writing Swift format it was the first time I ever did TDD really and I, I realized very early on that like this this is this cannot be done without tests because you know, you make some change in a formatter and it's going to like break a million files that you've, you, you couldn't possibly test them all by hand. So, um, yeah, very much a fan of unit testing. Um, but I don't do it particularly well. Uh, I kind of have to like force myself, um, like, you know, layout has a lot of tests, but I, I don't, I don't do TDD for that kind of thing. I, I tend to write the code first and then write the tests afterwards. Uh, Swift format is my one exception where I, I, generally i'll write a test case and then make it pass Um, and i don't do any ui testing like i don't i've never sort of really tried to do any like you know automatically run your app and click the buttons and see what happens type tests Hmm.
0: are any of your libraries a part of the swift open source compatibility suite
1: they're not um it's been suggested to me but I, i don't think that i'm not i'm not doing anything particularly out there um so like somebody said that I should make Swift format part of the compatibility suite because then like it would work if people you know If Apple like added new features, it's like that doesn't really work. That's like the opposite I need a compatibility suite for Swift format so that Swift format doesn't break other things um, Yeah, like none of my libraries have been significantly affected by Swift changes um, particularly.
0: Okay, all right I'm gonna hop over to your uh, Twitter profile and I always wondered about your profile picture you're like eating something. Your, it looks like you're maybe your daughter's putting something. Is that
1: like a apple or a shell? It was a sandwich. Oh, it's a sandwich. It's a sandwich. <laughs> yeah. So that's 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 my daughter is eating a sandwich and has decided to feed it to me instead. Oh, that's so cute.
0: Uh, so I'm looking at your... Um, <laughs> right? Your uh, bio. We talked about most of this stuff, except uh, it looks like you know you're an author of a lot of uh, open source libraries. I love the uh, objectionable Swift uh, <laughs> portion. So it, it's sort of how you think of your of your Swift. Um,
1: yeah, I, I wrote that a little while ago. Um, like uh, it's it's kind of more of a joke than than yeah, it looks like. Of course. Of course. <laughs> uh, and then just looking at some of your more recent
0: uh, tweets. Uh, I like the the pin tweet, uh, the hardest problem in computer science is fighting the urge to solve a different, more interesting problem than the one at hand. Um, and I feel like that's, yeah, that is sort of what we sort of all deal with. Um, you know, we have our work that we do, we get paid for it. Um, and at the same time, we might want to be doing some other type of, you know, interesting computer science problem or programming problem. Uh, yeah, I totally, totally relate to that. Um, the the next one is uh, license zero, and so you're an open source contributor, maintainer, creator. Uh, what's license zero? Uh, why'd you retweet it? Uh, yeah.
1: So uh, license zero, and this is like I mean, I tweeted this probably in like the hour before <laughs> we had this conversation. So like, don't don't grill me on it because I probably only skimmed it. But oh, okay. license zero license zero is basically a uh, it's a suggestion for how to deal with a kind of social problem, I guess, in, in the open source uh, community. So, like, most open source maintainers are unpaid, right? Or, I mean, they're paid, but not they're not paid to maintain their open source. like right. A day Right. Um, there's a, f- you know, very few exceptions, including myself, actually, currently, are actually, you know, paid to write open source as part of their day job. And I'm fantastically fortunate to be in that position now. But uh, I haven't been for most of my career. Most of the time, most of my open source libraries, I've just written in my spare time. Um, so yeah, you're not, you're not paid to do that. Right. And, and, uh, you often like get comments from people who don't seem to quite understand like the nature of the relationship. Like they think that they're, they're your customer and you're like a service provider that they've, they've like paid to do stuff for them. Right. (laughs) Like, like that you get the sense of entitlement. Like, you know, you've made a change and it broke my app and I expect you to fix it immediately. And like, you know, like, how dare you do this? And it's like, uh, who the hell do you think you are? Like, I, you know, I I do this as a favor to the community. Like, you know, I I owe you nothing. Um, and I mean, I can, I can kind of understand, like, you know, you, you put something out there and like people come to rely on it and then you break it. And like, you know, you can understand why they're upset and like why they, why they expect a certain sort of level of service. But the problem is that that just isn't, that's not possible because you know, like, my priorities are not to my open source users most of the time they they can't be because I, I have like actual priorities to people who you know pay my salary right um so it would be it would be good if there was a solution to that right like it would be good if if there was a way of making it so that people who make open source which a lot of you know a lot of us depend on open source um, a lot of our our apps and things are, are built on open source and we kind of need it to keep working and it, it, it would be good if there was some way of Maybe making it so that they like somebody was paid to do that—that that would be great. Yeah. Uh, so uh, this this zero license is a, is an idea. I, I don't necessarily know if it's the right idea. Um, I think I actually commented that like I think it would be more probably more effective if, if GitHub just like integrated uh, a, a donate button. <laughs> like, I think you know that would probably work better for somebody like me. I've got like 65 libraries or something. Like no, I have no idea who's using them. Um, but if if I had like a s- steady stream of like, you know, $10 donations for that coming in, that would certainly incentivize me probably to, you know, maybe pay more attention to some of them, some of the ones that I don't use anymore, and therefore have no real reason to maintain. But the zero license is basically a, an idea for so, you know, there's like three kinds of, of license, really, uh, I'm sure there's more than three, but the, the three three that spring to mind are Um, You've got your standard like MIT type license, which is what I use, which is basically just do whatever you want with this Like, you know, I I offer, you you no guarantees uh, I don't expect you to give me anything in return. Like you mention me and you'll read me if you feel like it But like there's just like this is this is what you get like That's that's the pretty much the 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 most popular kind of license then you've got the GPL which is um, It's got all these kind of uh, sort of viral like if you use my open source your app has to be open source which is an interesting idea. It's not really something I agree with, but I, I can see why people like believe in that. And then you've got commercial license, which is basically you give us money and we give you source code. And uh, you know, the commercial license is the only one that actually offers any sort of guarantee of like ongoing support. Um and it would be it would be nice if we had a guarantee of ongoing support when we're gonna like, you know, install something in our app and depend on it. So the zero license is a suggestion of Basically, it's, it's almost like a sort of free trial license. It's like, use this and look at the code and try it out for 90 days. And if you like it, then, you know, and you're using it in a commercial product, then at that point, it kind of transforms into a commercial license and you're obliged to pay us or stop using it. Um, but if you're just using it for like your, you know, your blog or whatever, or something you're not making any money out of, then it's effectively just a, a regular open source license. So you can just like use it for free and don't worry about it. Um, it's an interesting idea. Um, I, I don't, I don't think I can see it working. Part of the reason is because, um, you know, like for a doc, like the, the licenses we have uh, have kind of been standardized on because there's a lot of kind of like legal processes involved. Like it's, you know, I, I use the, um, Zlib license which is kind of a, a variant of MIT it's like basically the same except that it doesn't require attribution which most MIT licenses do and that already gives people headaches like I've had people say hey my legal department says that they don't know what this thing is so we can't use your library can you use MIT instead huh. and so I mean this is this is like in the real world like um, I've heard a lot of like you have these um, fun licenses like you know, do whatever the fuck you like license Um, and you know, people are like, we can, we can't use this license. Like we can't use your (laughs) software because our our lawyers say we can't put that in our app. Like, you know, (laughs) it it has the F word in it We can't put it in our readme file. Like, you know, (laughs) so there's like, there's all kinds of, you know, you think you're being helpful by saying, Oh, Hey, like this is public domain or do whatever you want. Right. But uh, actually, you know, if you're not, if if you've gone off the piece with your license, you're making things harder for people for the most part, which is why, like, if you're not using like one of the five or six standard licenses. Probably you're actually going to reduce adoption of your software. So for the zero license to, to take effect, it's not enough for people to just say, hey, I think that's a good idea. I'll just use that. Like there's probably, you know, court cases would have to be fought over this. Like big companies would have to decide what the implications were. Uh, I can't really see it happening. Like, you know, in, inventing your own license at this point is like inventing your own operating system or something. Like, OK, great. Yeah, I'm sure it's brilliant, but nobody's going to use it.
0: I think some uh, kind of uh, GitHub integration to make it easier for um, people all around the world to uh, donate to contributors. It seems like such a, like an easy, you know, good idea. Uh, we'll see. Maybe they'll do that. I think that's the best idea. At least one way to do it.
1: That's really what I'd like to see. And I don't think it's going to happen because I, I, I kind of get the impression it's sort of antithetical to GitHub's view of the world. But I would really like it if GitHub became more of like a marketplace almost. It would be like, if, if they took all the pain out of, you know, making donations out of even selling and monetizing software, I think that could be huge. Like they, they have a real sort of potential to do great things if they went in that direction. I don't think it's what they're going to do, though. That's that's my impression anyway. But that's, that's not really based on anything. That's just like conversations I've had on Twitter and stuff. Um, but I mean, I would love it if I was wrong about that.
0: All right. Nick, thank you so much for taking time out of your day today. Uh, this went way over like two and a half hours. It's just it's the way it goes when um you know when when I interview uh people that are just doing so much for the community, it's just like and we barely talked about your life, so it's pretty interesting. Uh, okay, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your story with us. Uh, you know you've been programming since you were twelve. With your, you know, doing BBC Basic and then the Amiga, and uh, you know, you went to school for electrical engineering, realized you didn't like it, and and, uh, I think you went back and and did computer science. Did you end up getting a computer science degree?
1: Yes, I have a computer science degree,
0: masters. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right, the master's degree. Yeah, exactly. And then you did uh, web development, and then the iPhone came out, and you. Uh, you know, had to develop for that, and you eventually got into that. And then Swift uh, came out, and you, uh, you know, you really liked it, but then you had to make up reasons to not like it because you couldn't really use it and you didn't want to feel bad. But uh, once you were uh, able to use it, uh, you know, real, you know, on your day job, so to say, uh, you, uh, yeah, you started using it and you're making cool tools uh, like Swift Format and now uh, Layout. Um, and uh yeah just thank you so much for the work that you do uh, in the swift community and making your code available to to us to use to look at to admire and um yeah i look forward to potentially meeting you one day in person who knows maybe at a conference and um yeah thank you so much it's my pleasure and that's the show ladies and gentlemen I hope you enjoyed listening to the Swift Coders podcast. Feel free to share the show with a friend, leave a review on iTunes, or recommend us on Overcast. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, contact me on Twitter. Until next time, go swiftly, my friends.